0: This is Chapter 30 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 30 I met men at every turn who owned from one thousand to thirty thousand feet in undeveloped silver mines, every single foot of which, they'd believed, would shortly be worth from fifty to a thousand dollars, and, as often as any other way, they were men who had not twenty-five dollars in the world. Every man you met had his new mine to boast of, and his specimens ready, and if the opportunity offered, he would infallibly back you into a corner and offer as a favor to you, not to him to part with just a few feet in the Golden Age, or the Sarah Jane, or some other unknown stack of croppings, for money enough to get a square meal with, as the phrase went. And you were never to reveal that he made you the offer at such a ruinous price, for it was only out of friendship for you that he was willing to make the sacrifice. Then he would fish a piece of rock out of his pocket and after looking mysteriously around, as if he feared he might be waylaid and robbed if caught with such wealth in his possession, he would dab the rock against his tongue, clap an eyeglass to it, and exclaim—'Look at that! Right there in that red dirt! See it? See the specks of gold? And the streak of silver? That's from the Uncle Abe. There's a hundred thousand tons like that in sight—right in sight, mind you. And when we get down on it, and the ledge comes in solid, it will be the richest thing in the world.' Look at the assay. I don't want you to believe me. Look at the assay. Then he would get out a greasy sheet of paper which showed that the portion of rock assayed had given evidence of containing silver and gold in the proportion of so many hundreds or thousands of dollars to the ton. I little knew then that the custom was to hunt out the richest piece of rock and get it assayed. Very often that piece, the size of a filbert, was the only fragment in a ton that had a particle of metal in it and yet the assay made it pretend to represent the average value of the ton of rubbish it came from. On such a system of assaying as that, the Humboldt world had gone crazy. On the authority of such assays, its newspaper correspondents were frothing about rock worth four and seven thousand dollars a ton. And does the reader remember, a few pages back, the calculations of a quoted correspondent whereby the ore is to be mined and shipped all the way to England? the metals extracted, and the gold and silver contents received back by the miners as clear profit, the copper, antimony, and other things in the ore being sufficient to pay all the expenses incurred. Everybody's head was full of such calculations as those, such raving insanity, rather. Few people took work into their calculations, or outlay of money, either, except the work and expenditures of other people. We never touched our tunnel or shaft again. Why? Because we judged that we had learned the real secret of success in silver-mining, which was not to mine the silver ourselves, by the sweat of our brows and the labor of our hands, but to sell the ledges to the dull slaves of toil and let them do the mining. Before leaving Carson, the secretary and I had purchased feet from various Esmeralda stragglers. We had expected immediate returns of bullion but were only afflicted with regular and constant assessments, instead. Demands for money were with to develop the said mines. These assessments had grown so oppressive that it seemed necessary to look into the matter personally. Therefore I projected a pilgrimage to Carson, and thence to Esmeralda. I bought a horse, and started, in company with Mr. Bellew and a gentleman named Ollendorf, a Prussian, not the party who has inflicted so much suffering on the world with his wretched foreign grammars with their interminable repetitions of questions which never have occurred and are never likely to occur in any conversation among human beings we rode through a snow-storm for two or three days and arrived at honey lake smith's a sort of isolated inn on the carson river It was a two-story log house, situated on a small knoll in the midst of the vast basin or desert through which the sickly carson winds its melancholy way. Close to the house were the overland stage-stables, built of sun-dried bricks. There was not another building within several leagues of the place. Toward sunset about twenty hay-wagons arrived and camped out around the house, and all the teamsters came in to supper. A very, very rough set. There were one or two overland stage-drivers there also, and a half-dozen vagabonds and stragglers. Consequently, the house was well crowded. We walked out, after supper, and visited a small Indian camp in the vicinity. The Indians were in a great hurry about something, and were packing up and getting away as fast as they could. In their broken English they said, By'm by heap water, and by the help of signs made us understand that, in their opinion, a flood was coming. The weather was perfectly clear, and this was not the rainy season. There was about a foot of water in the insignificant river, or maybe two feet. The stream was not wider than a back alley in a village, and its banks were scarcely higher than a man's head. So where was the flood to come from? We canvassed the subject a while, and then concluded it was a ruse, and that the Indians had some better reason for leaving in a hurry than fears of a flood in such an exceedingly dry time. At seven in the evening we went to bed in the second story, with our clothes on, as usual, and all three in the same bed, for every available space on the floors, chairs, etc. was in request, and even then there was barely room for the housing of the inn's guests. An hour later we were awakened by a great turmoil, and springing out of bed we picked our way nimbly among the ranks of snoring teamsters on the floor, and got to the front windows of the long room. A glance revealed a strange spectacle under the moonlight. The crooked Carson was full to the brim, and its waters were raging and foaming in the wildest way, sweeping around the sharp bends at a furious speed, and bearing on their surface a chaos of logs, brush, and all sorts of rubbish. A depression where its bed had once been in other times was already filling, and in one or two places the water was beginning to wash over the main bank. Men were flying hither and thither, bringing cattle and wagons close up to the house, for the spot of high ground on which it stood extended only some thirty feet in front and about a hundred in the rear. Close to the old river-bed just spoken of stood a little log stable, and in this our horses were lodged. While we looked the waters increased so fast in this place that in a few minutes a torrent was roaring by the little stable and its margin encroaching steadily on the logs. We suddenly realized that this flood was not a mere holiday spectacle, but meant damage, and not only to the small log-stable but to the overland buildings close to the main river, for the waves had now come ashore, and were creeping about the foundations and invading the great hay corral adjoining. We ran down and joined the crowd of excited men and frightened animals. We waded knee-deep into the log-stable, unfastened the horses, and waded out almost waist-deep, so fast the water increased. Then the crowd rushed in a body to the hay corral and began to tumble down the huge stacks of baled hay and roll the bales up on high ground by the house. Meantime it was discovered that Owens, an overland driver, was missing, and a man ran to the large stable and, wading in, boot-top deep, discovered him asleep in his bed, awoke him, and waded out again. But Owens was drowsy and resumed his nap, but only for a minute or two presently he turned in his bed, his hand dropped over the side, and came in contact with the cold water. It was up level with the mattress. He waded out breast-deep, almost, and the next moment the sunburned bricks melted down like sugar, and the big building crumbled to a ruin, and was washed away in a twinkling. At eleven o'clock only the roof of the little log-stable was out of water, and our inn was on an island, in mid-ocean. As far as the eye could reach in the moonlight there was no desert visible, but only a level waste of shining water. The Indians were true prophets, but how did they get their information? I am not able to answer the question. We remained cooped up eight days and nights with that curious crew. Swearing, drinking, and card-playing were the order of the day, and occasionally a fight was thrown in for variety. Dirt and vermin, but let us forget those features. Their profusion is simply inconceivable. It is better that they remain so. There were two men. uh, However, uh, this chapter is long enough. End of chapter 30. This is chapter 31 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit Librivox.org. *Roughing It* by Mark Twain, Chapter Thirty-One. There were two men in the company who caused me particular discomfort. One was a little Swede, about twenty-five years old, who knew only one song, and he was forever singing it. By day, we were all crowded into one small, stifling bar room, and so there was no escaping this person's music. Through all the profanity, whiskey-guzzling, old sledge, and quarreling, his monotonous song meandered with never a variation in its tiresome sameness, and it seemed to me, at last, that I would be content to die, in order to be rid of the torture. The other man was a stalwart ruffian called Arkansas, who carried two revolvers in his belt, and a bowie-knife projecting from his boot, and who was always drunk, and always suffering for a fight but he was so feared that nobody would accommodate him. He would try all manner of little wary ruses to entrap somebody into an offensive remark, and his face would light up now and then when he fancied he was fairly on the scent of a fight, but invariably his victim would elude his toils, and then he would show a disappointment that was almost pathetic. The landlord, Johnson, was a meek, well-meaning fellow, and Arkansas fastened on him early, as a promising subject and gave him no rest day or night for a while. On the fourth morning, Arkansas got drunk and sat himself down to wait for an opportunity. Presently, Johnson came in, just comfortably sociable with whiskey, and said, I reckon the Pennsylvania election Arkansas raised his finger impressively, and Johnson stopped. Arkansas rose unsteadily and confronted him. Said he, Wah what do you know uh, uh, about Pennsylvania? Answer me that. Why, what do you know about Pennsylvania? Well, I was only going to say. You was only going to say. You was. You was only going to say. What was you going to say? That's it. That's what I want to know. I want to know what? What you, <coughs> what you know about Pennsylvania, since you're making yourself so <coughs> free? Answer me that. Mr. Arkansas, if you'd only let me hose a hand on you, don't you insinuate nothing again me. Don't you do it. Don't you come in here bulling around and cussing and going on like a lunatic? Don't you do it, cause I won't stand it. If fight's what you want, out with it. I'm your man. Out with it," said Johnson, backing into a corner. Arkansas following menacingly. "Why, I, I never said nothing, Mister Arkansas. You don't give a man no chance. I, I was only going to say that Pennsylvania was going to have an election next week. That was all. That was everything I was going to say. I, I wish I may never stir if it wasn't. Well then, why didn't you say it? Why'd you come swelling round that way for trying to raise trouble? Why, well, I, I, I didn't come swelling round, Mister Arkansas. I just—I'm a liar, am I? Great Caesar's ghost! Oh, please, Mister Arkansas, I never meant such a thing as that. I wish I may die if I did. All the boys would tell you that I've always spoke well of you and respected you more'n any man in the house. Ask Smith. Ain't it so, Smith? Didn't I say, no longer ago than last night, that for a man that was a gentleman all the time, and every way you took him, give me Arkansas? I'll leave it to any gentleman here, if them weren't the very words I used. Come now, Mr. Arkansas, let's take a drink. Uh, let's let's shake hands and take a drink. Come on, everybody, it's, it's my treat. Come on, Bill, Tom, Bob, Scotty, come up. I want you all to take a drink with me in Arkansas, old Arkansas, I call him. Bully old Arkansas! Give me your hand again. Look at him, boys. Just take a look at him. Thar stands the whitest man in America. And the man that denies it has got to fight me, that's all. Give me that old flipper again." They embraced, with drunken affection on the landlord's part, and unresponsive toleration on the part of Arkansas, who, bribed by a drink, was disappointed of his prey once more but the foolish landlord was so happy to have escaped butchery that he went on talking when he ought to have marched himself out of danger. The consequence was that Arkansas shortly began to glower upon him dangerously, and presently said, "'Landlord, will you p-please make that remark over again, if you please?' "'But I I was saying to Scotty that my father was upwards of eighty years old when he died.' "'Was that all that you said?' "'Yes, uh, that was all.' didn't say nothing but that? No, nothing. Then an uncomfortable silence. Arkansas played with his glass a moment, lolling on his elbows on the counter. Then he meditatively scratched his left shin with his right boot while the awkward silence continued. But presently he loafed away toward the stove, looking dissatisfied. Roughly shouldered two or three men out of a comfortable position, occupied it himself gave a sleeping dog a kick that sent him howling under a bench, then spread his long legs and his blanket-coat-tails apart, and proceeded to warm his back. In a little while he fell to grumbling to himself, and soon he slouched back to the bar, and said, "'Landlord, what's your idea for raking up old personalities and blowing about your father? Ain't this company agreeable to you? Ain't it? If this company ain't agreeable to you, perhaps we'd better leave. Is that your idea? Is that what you're coming at?' Why, Bless your soul, Arkansas, I warn't thinking of such a thing. My father and my mother... Landlord, don't crowd a man! Don't do it! If nothing'll do you but a disturbance out with it like a man! (coughs) But don't rake up old bygones and fling em in the teeth of a passel of people that wants to be peaceable, if they could get a chance. What's the matter with you this morning, anyway? I never see a man carry on so. Arkansas, I really didn't mean no harm, and I won't go on with it if it's unpleasant to you. I reckon my liquor's got into my head, and what, with the food, and having so many to feed and look out for? So that's what's a-rankling your heart, is it? You want us to leave, do you? There's too many of us. You want us to pack up and swim, is that it? Come! Please, be reasonable, Arkansas. Now you know I ain't the man to— Are you threatening me? Are you? By George, the man don't live that can skeer me. Don't you try to come up that game, my chicken, because I can stand a good deal, but I won't stand that. Come out from behind that bar till I clean you. You want to drive us out, do you, you sneaking, underhanded hound? Come out from behind that bar. I'll learn you to bully and badger and browbeat a gentleman that's forever trying to befriend you and keep you out of trouble. Please, Arkansas, please don't shoot. If there's got to be bloodshed... hear that gentleman? You hear him talk about bloodshed? So it's blood you want, is it? You raven desperado. You've made up your mind to murder somebody this morning. I knowed it perfectly well. I'm the man, am I? It's me you're going to murder, is it? But you can't do it thout I get one chance first, you thieving, black-hearted, white-livered son of a nigger. you your weepin!' With that, Arkansas began to shoot, and the Landlord to clamber over benches, men and every sort of obstacle in a frantic desire to escape. In the midst of the wild hubbub, the Landlord crashed through a glass door, and as Arkansas charged after him, the Landlord's wife suddenly appeared in the doorway and confronted the desperado with a pair of scissors. Her fury was magnificent. With head erect and flashing eyes, she stood a moment and then advanced, with her weapon raised. The astonished ruffian hesitated, and then fell back a step. She followed. She backed him, step by step, into the middle of the barroom. And then, while the wondering crowd closed up and gazed, she gave him such another tongue-lashing as never a cowed and shamefaced braggart got before, perhaps. As she finished, and retired victorious, a roar of applause shook the house and every man ordered drinks for the crowd in one and the same breath. The lesson was entirely sufficient. The reign of terror was over, and the Arkansas domination broken for good. During the rest of the season of island captivity there was one man who sat apart in a state of permanent humiliation, never mixing in any quarrel or uttering a boast, and never resenting the insults the once cringing crew now constantly leveled at him. And that man was Arkansas. By the fifth or sixth morning, the waters had subsided from the land, but the stream in the old river bed was still high and swift, and there was no possibility of crossing it. On the eighth, it was still too high for an entirely safe passage, but life in the inn had become next to insuperable by reason of the dirt, drunkenness, fighting, etc. And so we made an effort to get away. In the midst of a heavy snowstorm, we embarked in a canoe taking our saddles aboard and towing our horses after us by their halters. The Prussian, Olendorf was in the bow, with a paddle. Ballou paddled in the middle, and I sat in the stern, holding the halters. When the horses lost their footing and began to swim, Olendorf got frightened, for there was great danger that the horses would make our aim uncertain, and it was plain that if we failed to land at a certain spot the current would throw us off and almost surely cast us into the main carson which was a boiling torrent now. Such a catastrophe would be death in all probability, for we would be swept to sea in the sink, or overturned and drowned. We warned Ollendorf to keep his wits about him and handle himself carefully, but it was useless. The moment the bow touched the bank, he made a spring, and the canoe whirled upside down in ten-foot water. Ollendorf seized some brush and dragged himself ashore, but Bellew and I had to swim for it, encumbered with our overcoats but we held on to the canoe, and although we were washed down nearly to Carson, we managed to push the boat ashore, and make a safe landing. We were cold and water-soaked, but safe. The horses made a landing, too, but our saddles were gone, of course. We tied the animals in the sagebrush, and there they had to stay for twenty-four hours. We bailed out the canoe, and ferried over some food and blankets for them, but we slept one more night in the inn before making another venture on our journey. The next morning it was still snowing furiously when we got away with our new stock of saddles and accoutrements. We mounted and started. The snow lay so deep on the ground that there was no sign of a road perceptible, and the snowfall was so thick that we could not see more than a hundred yards ahead, else we could have guided our course by the mountain ranges. The case looked dubious, but Ollendorf said his instinct was as sensitive as any compass and that he could strike a bee-line for Carson City and never diverge from it. He said that if he were to straggle a single point out of the true line his instinct would assail him like an outraged conscience. Consequently, we dropped into his wake happy and content. For half an hour we poked along warily enough, but at the end of that time we came upon a fresh trail. And Ollendorf shouted proudly—'I knew I was dead as certain as a compass, boys, here we are, right in somebody's tracks that will hunt the way for us without any trouble. Let's hurry up and join company with the party." So we put the horses into as much of a trot as the deep snow would allow, and before long it was evident that we were gaining on our predecessors, for the tracks grew more distinct. We hurried along, and at the end of an hour the tracks looked still newer and fresher. But what surprised us was that the number of travelers in advance of us seemed to steadily increase we wondered how so large a party came to be traveling at such a time and in such a solitude. Somebody suggested that it must be a company of soldiers from the fort, and so we accepted that solution and jogged along a little faster still, for they could not be far off now. But the tracks still multiplied, and we began to think the platoon of soldiers was miraculously expanding into a regiment. Ballou said they had already increased to five hundred. Presently he stopped his horse and said, "Boys." these are our own tracks and we've actually been circusing around and round in a circle for more than two hours out here in this blind desert by george this is perfectly hydraulic then the old man waxed wroth and abusive he called ollendorf all manner of hard names said he never saw such a lurid fool as he was and ended with a peculiarly venomous opinion that he did not know as much as a logarithm we certainly had been following our own tracks Ollendorf and his mental compass were in disgrace from that moment. After all our hard travel, here we were on the bank of the stream again, with the inn beyond dimly outlined through the driving snowfall. While we were considering what to do, the young Swede landed from the canoe and took his pedestrian way carsonwards, singing his same tiresome song about his sister and his brother and the child in the grave with its mother, and in a short minute faded and disappeared in the white oblivion. He was never heard of again. He no doubt got bewildered and lost, and fatigue delivered him over to sleep, and sleep betrayed him to death. Possibly he followed our treacherous tracks till he became exhausted and dropped. Presently the overland stage forded the now fast-receding stream and started toward Carson, on its first trip since the flood came. We hesitated no longer now, but took up our march in its wake, and trotted merrily along for we had good confidence in the driver's bump of locality. But our horses were no match for the fresh stage team. We were soon left out of sight. But it was no matter, for we had the deep ruts of the wheels made for a guide. By this time it was three in the afternoon, and consequently it was not very long before night came, and not with a lingering twilight but with a sudden shutting down like a cellar door, as is its habit in that country. The snowfall was still as thick as ever and of course we could not see fifteen steps before us. But all about us the white glare of the snow-bed enabled us to discern the smooth sugar-loaf mounds made by the covered sage-bushes, and just in front of us the two faint grooves which we knew were the steadily filling and slowly disappearing wheel-tracks. Now those sage-brushes were all about the same height, three or four feet. They stood just about seven feet apart, and all over the vast desert. Each of them was a mere snow-mound, now in any direction that you proceeded, the same as in a well-laid-out orchard, you would find yourself moving down a distinctly defined avenue, with a row of these snow-mounds on either side of it, an avenue the customary width of a road, nice and level in its breadth, and rising at the sides in the most natural way by reason of the mounds. But we had not thought of this. Then imagine the chilly thrill that shot through us when it finally occurred to us, far in the night since the last faint trace of the wheel tracks had long ago been buried from sight, we might now be wandering down a mere sage-brush avenue, miles away from the road and diverging further and further away from it all the time. Having a cake of ice slipped down one's back is placid comfort compared to it. There was a sudden leap and stir of blood that had been asleep for an hour, and as sudden a rousing of all the drowsing activities in our minds and bodies. We were alive and awake at once and shaking and quaking with consternation, too. There was an instant halting and dismounting, a bending low, and an anxious scanning of the road-bed. Useless, of course, for if a faint depression could not be discerned from an altitude of four or five feet above it, it certainly could not, with one's nose nearly against it. End of chapter thirty-one This is chapter thirty-two of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter thirty two. We seemed to be in a road, but that was no proof. We tested this by walking off in various directions. The regular snow mounds and the regular avenues between them convinced each man that he had found the true road, and that the others had found only false ones plainly the situation was desperate we were cold and stiff and the horses were tired we decided to build a sagebrush fire and camp out till morning this was wise because if we were wandering from the right road and the snowstorm continued another day our case would be the next thing to hopeless if we kept on all agreed that a campfire was what would come nearest to saving us now and so we set about building it we could find no matches and so we tried to make shift with the pistols. Not a man in the party had ever tried to do such a thing before, but not a man in the party doubted that it could be done, and without any trouble, because every man in the party had read about it in books many a time, and had naturally come to believe it with trusting simplicity, just as he had long ago accepted and believed that other common book fraud about Indians and lost hunters, making a fire by rubbing two dry sticks together. We huddled together on our knees in the deep snow, and the horses put their noses together and bowed their patient heads over us. And while the feathery flakes eddied down and turned us into a group of white statuary, we proceeded with the momentous experiment. We broke twigs from a sage-bush and piled them on a little cleared place in the shelter of our bodies. In the course of ten or fifteen minutes, all was ready. And then— while conversation ceased and our pulses beat low with anxious suspense Olendorf applied his revolver pulled the trigger and blew the pile clear out of the county it was the flattest failure that ever was this was distressing but it paled before a great horror the horses were gone I had been appointed to hold the bridles, but in my absorbing anxiety over the pistol experiment I had unconsciously dropped them, and the released animals had walked off in the storm. It was useless to try to follow them, for their footfalls could make no sound, and one could pass within two yards of the creatures and never see them. We gave them up without an effort at recovering them, and cursed the lying books that said horses would stay by their masters for protection and companionship in a distressful time like ours. We were miserable enough before, we felt still more forlorn now. Patiently, but with blighted hope, we broke more sticks and piled them, and once more the Prussians shot them into annihilation. Plainly, to light a fire with a pistol was an art requiring patience and experience, and the middle of a desert, at midnight, in a snowstorm, was not a good place or time for the acquiring of the accomplishment. We gave it up and tried the other. Each man took a couple of sticks and fell to chafing them together. At the end of half an hour we were thoroughly chilled, and so were the sticks. We bitterly execrated the Indians, the hunters, and the books that had betrayed us with the silly device, and wondered dismally what was next to be done. This critical moment Mr. Bellew fished out four matches from the rubbish of an overlooked pocket. To have found four gold bars would have seemed poor and cheap good luck compared to this one cannot think how good a match looks under such circumstances or how lovable and precious and sacredly beautiful to the eye this time we gathered sticks with high hopes and when mr bellew prepared to light the first match there was an amount of interest centered upon him that pages of writing could not describe the match burned hopefully a moment and then went out it could not have carried more regret with it than if it had been a human life The next match simply flashed and died. The wind puffed the third one out, just as it was on the imminent verge of success. We gathered together, closer than ever, and developed a solicitude that was rapt and painful, as Mr. Ballou scratched our last hope on his leg. It lit, turned blue and sickly, and then butted into a robust flame shading it with his hands the old gentleman bent gradually down and every heart went with him everybody too for that matter and blood and breath stood still the flame touched the sticks at last took gradual hold upon them hesitated took a stronger hold hesitated again held its breath five heart-breaking seconds then gave a sort of human gasp and went out nobody said a word for several minutes It was a solemn sort of silence. Even the wind put on a stealthy, sinister quiet, and made no more noise than the falling flakes of snow. Finally a sad-voiced conversation began, and it was soon apparent that in each of our hearts lay the conviction that this was our last night with the living. I had so hoped that I was the only one who felt so. When the others calmly acknowledged their conviction it sounded like the summons itself. Ohlendorf said— brothers let us die together and let us go without one hard feeling toward each other let us forget and forgive bygones i know that you have felt hard toward me for turning over the canoe and for knowing too much and leading you round and round in the snow but i meant well forgive me i acknowledge freely that i have had hard feelings against mr blue for abusing me and calling me a logarithm which is a thing i do not know what but no doubt a thing considered disgraceful and unbecoming in America, and it has scarcely been out of my mind and has hurt me a great deal. But let it go. I forgive Mr. Ballou with all my heart. And—' Poor Ollendorf broke down and the tears came. He was not alone, for I was crying too, and so was Mr. Ballou. Ollendorf got his voice again and forgave me for things I had done and said. Then he got out his bottle of whiskey and said that, whether he lived or died, he would never touch another drop. He said he had given up all hope of life, and although ill-prepared was ready to submit humbly to his fate, that he wished he could be spared a little longer, not for any selfish reason, but to make a thorough reform in his character, and by devoting himself to helping the poor, nursing the sick, and pleading with the people to guard themselves against the evils of intemperance, make his life a beneficent example to the young, and lay it down at last with the precious reflection that it had not been lived in vain he ended by saying that his reform should begin at this moment even here in the presence of death since no longer time was to be vouchsafed wherein to prosecute it to men's help and benefit and with that he threw away the bottle of whiskey. Mr. Blue made remarks of similar purport, and began the reform he could not live to continue by throwing away the ancient pack of cards that had solaced our captivity during the flood, and made it bearable. He said he never gambled, but still was satisfied that the meddling with cards in any way was immoral and injurious, and no man could be wholly pure and blemishless without eschewing them. And therefore, continued he, in doing this act, I already feel more in sympathy with that spiritual Saturnalia necessary to entire and obsolete reform." These rolling syllables touched him as no intelligible eloquence could have done, and the old man sobbed with a mournfulness not unmingled with satisfaction. My own remarks were of the same tenor as those of my comrades, and I know that the feelings that prompted them were heartfelt and sincere. We were all sincere and all deeply moved and earnest for we were in the presence of death and without hope i threw away my pipe and in doing it felt that at last i was free of a hated vice and one that had ridden me like a tyrant all my days while i yet talked the thought of the good i might have done in the world and the still greater good i might now do with these new incentives and higher and better aims to guide me if i could only be spared a few years longer overcame me and the tears came again. We put our arms about each other's necks, and awaited the warning drowsiness that precedes death by freezing. It came, stealing over us presently, and then we bade each other a last farewell. A delicious dreaminess wrought its web about my yielding senses, while the snowflakes wove a winding sheet about my conquered body. Oblivion came. The battle of life was done. End of chapter thirty two. This is chapter thirty three of Ruffing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Ruffing It by Mark Twain. Chapter thirty three. I do not know how long I was in a state of forgetfulness, but it seemed an age. A vague consciousness grew upon me by degrees, and then came a gathering anguish of pain in my limbs and through all my body. I shuddered. The thought flitted through my brain. This is death. This is the hereafter. Then came a white upheaval at my side, and a voice said with bitterness, "'Will some gentleman be so good as to kick me behind?' It was Baloo. At least it was a tousled snow image in a sitting posture with Baloo's voice. I rose up, and there, in the gray dawn, not fifteen steps from us, were the frame buildings of a stage station, and under a shed, stood our still saddled and bridled horses. An arch snowdrift broke up now, and Ollendorf emerged from it and the three of us sat and stared at the houses without speaking a word. We really had nothing to say; we were like the profane man who could not do the subject justice. The whole situation was so painfully ridiculous and humiliating that words were tame, and we did not know where to commence anyhow. The joy in our hearts at our deliverance was poisoned—well nigh dissipated, indeed. We presently began to grow pettish, by degrees, and sullen, and then angry at each other—angry at ourselves—angry at everything in general. We moodily dusted the snow from our clothing, and in unsociable single file plowed our way to the horses unsaddled them, and sought shelter in the station. I have scarcely exaggerated a detail of this curious and absurd adventure. It occurred almost exactly as I have stated it. We actually went into camp in a snowdrift in a desert, at midnight in a storm, forlorn and hopeless, within fifteen steps of a comfortable inn. For two hours we sat apart in the station and ruminated in disgust. The mystery was gone now, and it was plain enough why the horses had deserted us. Without a doubt they were under that shed a quarter of a minute after they had left us, and they must have overheard and enjoyed all our confessions and lamentations. After breakfast we felt better, and the zest of life soon came back. The world looked bright again, and existence was as dear to us as ever. Presently an uneasiness came over me, grew upon me, assailed me without ceasing. Alas, my regeneration was not complete. I wanted to smoke. I resisted with all my strength, but the flesh was weak. I wandered away alone, and wrestled with myself an hour. I recalled my promises of reform, and preached to myself persuasively, upbraidingly, exhaustively. But it was all vain. I shortly found myself sneaking among the snowdrifts, hunting for my pipe. I discovered it after a considerable search, and crept away to hide myself and enjoy it. I remained behind the barn a good while, asking myself how I would feel if my braver, stronger, truer comrades should catch me in my degradation. At last I lit the pipe, and no human being can feel meaner and baser than I did then. I was ashamed of being in my own pitiful company. Still dreading discovery, I felt that perhaps the further side of the barn would be somewhat safer, and so I turned the corner. As I turned the one corner, smoking, Olendorf turned the other, with his bottle to his lips, and between us sat unconscious Baloo, deep in a game of solitaire, with the old greasy cards. Absurdity could go no farther. We shook hands, and agreed to say no more about reform and examples to the rising generation. The station we were at was at the verge of the twenty-six-mile desert. If we had approached it half an hour earlier the night before, we must have heard men shouting there and firing pistols, for they were expecting some sheep-drovers and their flocks, and knew that they would infallibly get lost and wander out of reach of help unless guided by sounds. While we remained at the station, three of the drovers arrived, nearly exhausted with their wanderings, but two others of their party were never heard of afterward. We reached Carson in due time and took a rest. This rest, together with preparations for the journey to Esmeralda, kept us there a week, and the delay gave us the opportunity to be present at the trial of the great landslide case of Hyde v. Morgan, an episode which is famous in Nevada to this day. After a word or two of necessary explanation, I will set down the history of this singular affair just as it transpired. End of chapter thirty-three This is chapter thirty-four of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain Chapter Thirty-Four the mountains are very high and steep about carson eagle and washoe valleys very high and very steep and so when the snow gets to melting off fast in the spring and the warm surfaced earth begins to moisten and soften the disastrous landslides commence the reader cannot know what a landslide is unless he has lived in that country, and seen the whole side of a mountain taken off some fine morning and deposited down in the valley, leaving a vast, treeless, unsightly scar upon the mountain's front, to keep the circumstance fresh in his memory all the years that he may go on living within seventy miles of that place. General Buncombe was shipped out to Nevada in the invoice of territorial officers to be United States Attorney." he considered himself a lawyer of parts and he very much wanted an opportunity to manifest it partly for the pure gratification of it and partly because his salary was territorially meagre which is a strong expression now the older citizens of a new territory look down upon the rest of the world with a calm benevolent compassion as long as it keeps out of the way when it gets in the way they snub it Sometimes this latter takes the shape of a practical joke. One morning Dick Hyde rode furiously up to General Buncombe's door in Carson City and rushed into his presence without stopping to tie his horse. He seemed much excited. He told the General that he wanted him to conduct a suit for him and would pay him five hundred dollars if he achieved a victory. And then, with violent gestures and a world of profanity, he poured out his grief— He said it was pretty well known that for some years he had been farming, or ranching, as the more customary term is, in Washoo District and making a successful thing of it, and furthermore it was known that his ranch was situated just in the edge of the valley, and that Tom Morgan owned a ranch immediately above it on the mountain side. And now the trouble was that one of those hated and dreaded landslides had come and slid Morgan's ranch, fences, cabins, cattle, barns, and everything down on top of his ranch, and exactly covered up every single vestige of his property, to a depth of about thirty-eight feet. Morgan was in possession, and refused to vacate the premises, said he was occupying his own cabin and not interfering with anybody else's, and said the cabin was standing on the same dirt and same ranch it had always stood on, and he would like to see anybody make him vacate and when i reminded him said hyde weeping that it was on top of my ranch and that he was trespassing he had the infernal meanness to ask me why didn't i stay on my ranch and hold possession when i see him a-comin why didn't I stay on it, the blathering lunatic? By George, when I heard that racket and looked up that hill, it was just like the whole world was a ripping and a tearing down that mountainside splinters and cordwood, thunder and lightning, hail and snow, odds and ends of haystacks and awful clouds of dust, trees going end over end in the air, rocks as big as a house jumping about a thousand feet high and busting into ten million pieces cattle turned inside out and a-coming head-on with their tails hangin' out between their teeth. And in the midst of all that rack and destruction sought that cussed Morgan on his gate-post, a wonderin' why I didn't stay and hold possession. Laws bless me, I just took one glimpse, General, and lit out in the county in three jumps exactly. But what grinds me is that that Morgan hangs on there and won't move off in that ranch, says it's his'n and he's going to keep it likes it better'n he did when it was higher up the hill. Mad. Well, I've been so mad for two days I couldn't find my way to town. Been wandering round in the brush in a starving condition. Got anything here to drink, General? But I'm here now, and I'm a-goin' to law. You hear me?' Never in all the world, perhaps, were a man's feelings so outraged as were the General's. He said he had never heard of such high-handed conduct in all his life as this Morgan's and he said there was no use in going to law morgan had no shadow of right to remain where he was nobody in the wide world would uphold him in it and no lawyer would take his case and no judge listen to it hyde said that right there was where he was mistaken everybody in town sustained morgan hal brayton a very smart lawyer had taken his case the courts being in vacation it was to be tried before a referee and ex-governor roop had already been appointed to that office and would open his court in a large public hall near the hotel at two that afternoon the general was amazed he said he had suspected before that the people of that territory were fools and now he knew it but he said rest easy rest easy and collect the witnesses for the victory was just as certain as if the conflict were already over. Hyde wiped away his tears and left. At two in the afternoon, referee Roop's court opened, and Roop appeared throned among his sheriffs, the witnesses, and spectators, and wearing upon his face a solemnity so awe-inspiring that some of his fellow conspirators had misgivings that maybe he had not comprehended, after all, that this was merely a joke. An unearthly stillness prevailed— for at the slightest noise, the judge uttered sternly the command, Order in the Court! and the sheriffs promptly echoed it. Presently, the general elbowed his way through the crowd of spectators with his arms full of law books, and on his ears fell an order from the judge which was the first respectful recognition of his high official dignity that had ever saluted them, and it trickled pleasantly through his whole system. Way for the United States Attorney! The witnesses were called legislators high government officers ranchmen miners indians chinamen negroes three-fourths of them were called by the defendant morgan but no matter their testimony invariably went in favor of the plaintiff hyde each new witness only added new testimony to the absurdity of a man's claiming to own another man's property because his farm had slid down on top of it then the morgan lawyers made their speeches and seemed to make singularly weak ones they did really nothing to help the morgan cause and now the general with exultation in his face got up and made an impassioned effort he pounded the table he banged the law-books he shouted and roared and howled he quoted from everything and everybody poetry sarcasm statistics history pathos bathos blasphemy and wound up with a grand war-whoop for free speech freedom of the press free schools the glorious bird of america and the principles of eternal justice applause when the general sat down he did it with the conviction that if there was anything in good strong testimony a great speech and believing and admiring countenances all around, mr morgan's case was killed ex-governor roop leant his head upon his hand for some minutes thinking and the still audience waited for his decision. Then he got up and stood erect, with bended head, and thought again. Then he walked the floor with long, deliberate strides, his chin in his hand, and still the audience waited. At last he returned to his throne, seated himself, and began impressively, "'Gentlemen, I feel the great responsibility that rests upon me this day. This is no ordinary case. On the contrary, it is plain,' that it is the most solemn and awful that ever man was called upon to decide gentlemen i have listened attentively to the evidence and have perceived that the weight of it-the overwhelming weight of it-is in favour of the plaintiff hyde i have listened also to the remarks of counsel with high interest and especially will i commend the masterly and irrefutable logic of the distinguished gentleman who represents the plaintiff but gentlemen Let us beware how we allow mere human testimony, human ingenuity in argument, and human ideas of equity, to influence us at a moment so solemn as this. Gentlemen, it ill becomes us, worms as we are, to meddle with the decrees of heaven. It is plain to me that heaven, in its inscrutable wisdom, has seen fit to move this defendant's ranch for a purpose. We are but creatures, and we must submit.' if Heaven has chosen to favour the defendant Morgan in this marked and wonderful manner, and if Heaven, dissatisfied with the position of the Morgan ranch upon the mountainside, has chosen to remove it to a position more eligible and more advantageous for its owner, it ill becomes us, insects as we are, to question the legality of the act, or inquire into the reasons that prompted it. No, Heaven created the ranches, and it is heaven's prerogative to rearrange them to experiment with them around at its pleasure it is for us to submit without repining i warn you that this thing which has happened is a thing with which the sacrilegious hands and brains and tongues of men must not meddle gentlemen it is the verdict of this court that the plaintiff richard hyde has been deprived of his ranch by the visitation of god and from this decision There is no appeal. Buncombe seized his cargo of law-books and plunged out of the courtroom frantic with indignation. He pronounced Roop to be a miraculous fool, an inspired idiot. In all good faith he returned at night and remonstrated with Roop upon his extravagant decision, and implored him to walk the floor and think for half an hour, and see if he could not figure out some sort of modification of the verdict. Roop yielded at last and got up to walk. He walked two hours and a half, and at last his face lit up happily, and he told Bunkin it had occurred to him that the ranch underneath the new Morgan ranch still belonged to Hyde, that his title to the ground was just as good as it had ever been, and therefore he was of the opinion that Hyde had a right to dig it out from under there, and—the general never waited to hear the end of it—he was always an impatient and irascible man that way. At the end of two months the fact that he had been played upon with a joke had managed to bore itself, like another Hussek tunnel, through the solid adamant of his understanding. End of chapter 34 This is chapter 35 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain Chapter 35 We finally left for Esmeralda, horseback. We had an addition to the company in the person of Captain John Nye, the governor's brother. He had a good memory, and a tongue hung in the middle. This is a combination which gives immortality to conversation." Captain John never suffered the talk to flag or falter once during the hundred and twenty miles of the journey. In addition to his conversational powers, he had one or two other endowments of a marked character. One was a singular handiness about doing anything and everything, from laying out a railroad or organizing a political party, down to sewing on buttons, shoeing a horse, or setting a broken leg or a hen. Another was a spirit of accommodation that prompted him to take the needs, difficulties, and perplexities of anybody and everybody upon his own shoulders at any and all times, and dispose of them with admirable facility and alacrity. Hence he always managed to find vacant beds in crowded inns, and plenty to eat in the emptiest larders. And finally, wherever he met a man, woman, or child in camp, in or desert, He either knew such parties personally, or had been acquainted with a relative of the same. Such another traveling comrade was never seen before. I cannot forbear giving a specimen of the way in which he overcame difficulties. On the second day out we arrived, very tired and hungry, at a poor little inn in the desert, and were told that the house was full, no provisions on hand, and neither hay nor barley to spare for the horses. Must move on the rest of us wanted to hurry on while it was yet light but captain john insisted on stopping a while we dismounted and entered there was no welcome for us on any face captain john began his blandishments and within twenty minutes he had accomplished the following things these found old acquaintances in three teamsters discovered that he used to go to school with the landlord's mother recognized his wife as a lady whose life he had saved once in california by stopping her runaway horse mended a child's broken toy and won the favor of its mother a guest of the inn helped the hostler bleed a horse and prescribed for another horse that had the heaves treated the entire party three times at the landlord's bar produced a later paper than anybody had seen for a week and sat himself down to read the news to a deeply interested audience the result, summed up, was as follows. The hostler found plenty of feed for our horses, we had a trout supper, an exceedingly sociable time after it, good beds to sleep in, and a surprising breakfast in the morning, and when we left, we left lamented by all. Captain John had some bad traits, but he had some uncommonly valuable ones to offset them with. Esmeralda was in many respects another Humboldt, but in a little more forward state, The claims we had been paying assessments on were entirely worthless, and we threw them away. The principal one cropped out of the top of a knoll that was fourteen feet high, and the inspired board of directors were running a tunnel under that knoll to strike the ledge. The tunnel would have to be seventy feet long, and would then strike the ledge at the same depth that a shaft twelve feet deep would have reached. The board were living on the assessments. Note bene, this hint comes too late for the enlightenment of New York silver miners. They have already learned all about this neat trick by experience. The board had no desire to strike the ledge, knowing that it was as barren of silver as a curbstone. This reminiscence calls to mind Jim Townsend's tunnel. He had paid assessments on a mine called the Daily, till he was well-nigh penniless." Finally an assessment was levied to run a tunnel 250 feet on the daily, and Townsend went up on the hill to look into the matters. He found the daily cropping out of the apex of an exceedingly sharp-pointed peak, and a couple of men up there facing the proposed tunnel. Townsend made a calculation. Then he said to the men, "'So you have taken a contract to run a tunnel into this hill 250 feet to strike this ledge?' "'Yes, sir.' Well, do you know that you have got one of the most expensive and arduous undertakings before you that was ever conceived by man? Why, no, how is that? Because this hill is only twenty-five feet through from side to side, and so you have got to build two hundred and twenty-five feet of your tunnel on trestle-work. The ways of silver-mining boards are exceedingly dark and sinuous. We took up various claims, and commenced shafts and tunnels on them, but never finished any of them. We had to do a certain amount of work on each to hold it, else uh, other parties could seize our property after the expiration of ten days. We were always hunting up new claims and doing a little work on them, and then waiting for a buyer, who never came. We never found any ore that would yield more than fifty dollars a ton, and as the mills charged fifty dollars a ton for working ore and extracting the silver, our pocket-money melted steadily away and none returned to take its place. We lived in a little cabin, and cooked for ourselves, and altogether it was a hard life, though a hopeful one, for we never ceased to expect fortune and a customer to burst upon us some day. At last, when flour reached a dollar a pound and money could not be borrowed on the best security at less than eight percent a month—I being without the security, too—I abandoned mining and went to milling. That is to say, I went to work as a common laborer in a quartz mill, at ten dollars a week, and board. End of chapter thirty-five This is chapter thirty-six of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. ROUGHING IT BY MARK Twain, CHAPTER 36 I had already learned how hard and long and dismal a task it is to burrow down into the bowels of the earth and get out the coveted ore, and now I learned that the burrowing was only half the work, and that to get the silver out of the ore was the dreary and laborious other half of it. We had to turn out at six in the morning and keep at it till dark." This mill was a six-stamp affair, driven by steam. Six tall, upright rods of iron, as large as a man's ankle, and heavily shod with a mass of iron and steel at their lower ends, were framed together like a gate, and these rose and fell, one after the other, in a ponderous dance, in an iron box called a battery. Each of these rods or stamps weighed six hundred pounds. One of us stood by the battery all day long, breaking up masses of silver-bearing rock with a sledge, and shoveling it into the battery. The ceaseless dance of the stamps pulverized the rock to powder, and a stream of water that trickled into the battery turned it into a creamy paste. The minutest particles were driven through a fine wire screen which fitted close round the battery, and were washed into great tubs warmed by superheated steam amalgamating pans, they are called. The mass of pulp in the pans was kept constantly stirred up by revolving mullers. A quantity of quicksilver was kept always in the battery, and this seized some of the liberated gold and silver particles and held on to them. Quicksilver was shaken in a fine shower into the pans, also, about every half hour, through a buckskin sack. Quantities of coarse salt and sulfate of copper were added, From time to time to assist the amalgamation by destroying these base metals which coated the gold and silver and would not let it unite with the quicksilver all these tiresome things we had to attend to constantly streams of dirty water flowed always from the pans and were carried off in broad wooden troughs to the ravine one would not suppose that atoms of gold and silver would float on top of six inches of water but they did and in order to catch them, coarse blankets were laid in the troughs, and little obstructing riffles charged with quicksilver were placed here and there across the troughs also. These riffles had to be cleaned, and the blankets washed out every evening to get their precious accumulations. And after all this eternity of trouble, one-third of the silver and gold and a ton of rock would find its way to the end of the troughs in the ravine at last, and have to be worked over again some day. There is nothing so aggravating as silver mining. There never was any idle time in that mill. There was always something to do. It is a pity that Adam could not have gone straight out of Eden into a quartz mill in order to understand the full force of his doom to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. Every now and then during the day we had to scoop some pulp out of the pans and tediously wash it in a horn spoon wash it little by little over the edge, till at last nothing was left but some little dull globules of quicksilver in the bottom. If they were soft and yielding, the pan needed some salt, or some sulfate of copper, or some other chemical rubbish to assist digestion. If they were crisp to the touch, and would retain a dint, they were freighted with all the silver and gold they could seize and hold, and consequently the pan needed a fresh charge of quicksilver. When there was nothing else to do, one could always screen tailings—that is to say, he could shovel up the dried sand that had washed down to the ravine through the troughs, and dash it against an upright wire screen to free it from pebbles and prepare it for working over. The process of amalgamation differed in the various mills, and this included changes in the style of pans and other machinery and a great diversity of opinion existed as to the best in use, but none of the methods employed involved the principle of milling ore without screening the tailings. Of all recreations in the world, screening tailings on a hot day with a long-handled shovel is the most undesirable. At the end of the week the machinery was stopped, and we cleaned up—that is to say we got the pulp out of the pans and batteries— and washed the mud patiently away till nothing was left but the long-accumulating mass of quicksilver with its imprisoned treasures. This we made into heavy, compact snowballs, and piled them up in a bright, luxurious heap for inspection. Making these snowballs cost me a fine gold ring—that and—ignorance—together. For the quicksilver invaded the ring with the same facility with which water saturates a sponge separated its particles, and the ring crumbled to pieces. We put our pile of quicksilver balls into an iron retort that had a pipe leading from it to a pail of water, and then applied a roasting heat. The quicksilver turned to vapor, escaped through the pipe into the pail, and the water turned it into good wholesome quicksilver again. Quicksilver is very costly, and they never waste it. On opening the retort there was our week's work. A lump of pure white, frosty looking silver, twice as large as a man's head. Perhaps a fifth of the mass was gold, but the color of it did not show, would not have shown, if two thirds of it had been gold. We melted it up and made a solid brick of it by pouring it into an iron brick mold. By such a tedious and laborious process were silver bricks obtained. This mill was but one of many others in operation at the time. The first one in Nevada was built at Egan Canyon, and was a small, insignificant affair, and compared most unfavorably with some of the immense establishments afterwards located at Virginia City and elsewhere. From our bricks a little corner was chipped off for the fire assay, a method used to determine the proportions of gold, silver, and base metals in the mass. This is an interesting process. The chip is hammered out as thin as paper and weighed on scales so fine and sensitive that if you weigh a two-inch scrap of paper on them, and then write your name on the paper with a coarse soft pencil and weigh it again, the scales will take marked notice of the addition. Then a little lead, also weighed, is rolled up with the flake of silver, and the two are melted at a great heat in a small vessel called a cupel, made by compressing bone ashes into a cup shape in a steel mold. The base metals oxidize, and are absorbed with the lead into the pores of the cupel. A button or globule of perfectly pure gold and silver is left behind, and by weighing it and noting the loss, the assayer knows the proportion of base metal the brick contains. He has to separate the gold from the silver now. The button is hammered out flat and thin, put in the furnace, and kept some time at a red heat after cooling it off it is rolled up like a quill and heated in a glass vessel containing nitric acid. The acid dissolves the silver and leaves the gold pure and ready to be weighed on its own merits. Then salt water is poured into the vessel containing the dissolved silver and the silver returns to palpable form again and sinks to the bottom. Nothing now remains but to weigh it, then the proportions of the several metals contained in the brick are known and the assayer stamps the value of the brick upon its surface. The sagacious reader will know now, without being told, that the speculative miner, in getting a fire-assay made of a piece of rock from his mine, to help him sell the same, was not in the habit of picking out the least valuable fragment of rock on his dump-pile, but quite the contrary. I have seen men hunt over a pile of nearly worthless quartz for an hour and at last find a little piece as large as a filbert, which was rich in gold and silver, and this was reserved for a fire-assay. Of course, the fire-assay would demonstrate that a ton of such rock would yield hundreds of dollars, and on such assays many an utterly worthless mine was sold. Assaying was a good business, and so some men engaged in it occasionally, who were not strictly scientific and capable, One assayer got such rich results out of all specimens brought to him that in time he acquired almost a monopoly of the business. But like all men who achieve a success, he became an object of envy and suspicion. And other assayers entered into a conspiracy against him, and let some prominent citizens into the secret in order to show that they meant fairly. Then they broke a little fragment off a carpenter's grindstone and got a stranger to take it to the popular scientist and get it assayed. In the course of an hour the result came, whereby it appeared that a ton of that rock would yield $1,184.40 in silver and $366.36 in gold. Due publication of the whole matter was made in the paper, and the popular assayer left town between two days. I will remark, in passing, that I only remained in the milling business one week. I told my employer I could not stay longer without an advance in my wages, that I liked quartz milling indeed was infatuated with it, that I had never before grown so tenderly attached to an occupation in so short a time, that nothing, it seemed to me, gave such scope to intellectual activity as feeding a battery and screening tailings and nothing so stimulated the moral attributes as retorting bullion and washing blankets. Still I felt constrained to ask an increase of salary. He said he was paying me ten dollars a week, and thought it a good round sum. How much did I want? I said about four hundred thousand dollars a month, and board Was about all I could reasonably ask, considering the hard times. I was ordered off the premises. And yet, when I look back to those days, and call to mind the exceeding hardness of the labor I performed in that mill, I only regret that I did not ask him seven hundred thousand. Shortly after this I began to grow crazy, along with the rest of the population, about the mysterious and wonderful cement-mine, and to make preparations to take advantage of any opportunity that might offer to go and help hunt for it. End of chapter 36 This is Chapter 37 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 37. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of Mono Lake that the marvelous Whiteman cement mine was supposed to lie. Every now and then it would be reported that Mr. W. had passed stealthily through Esmeralda at dead of night, in disguise, and then we would have a wild excitement, because he must be steering for his secret mine, and now was the time to follow him. In less than three hours after daylight all the horses and mules and donkeys in the vicinity would be bought, hired, or stolen, and half the community would be off for the mountains, following in the wake of Whiteman." but w would drift about through the mountain gorges for days together in a purposeless sort of way until the provisions of the miners ran out and they would have to go back home i have known it reported at eleven at night in a large mining camp that whiteman had just passed through and in two hours the streets so quiet before would be swarming with men and animals every individual would be trying to be very secret But yet venturing to whisper to just one neighbor that w had passed through and long before daylight this in the dead of winter the stampede would be complete the camp deserted and the whole population gone chasing after w the tradition was that in the early immigration more than twenty years ago three young germans brothers who had survived an indian massacre on the plains wandered on foot through the deserts avoiding all trails and roads and simply holding a westerly direction and hoping to find california before they starved or died of fatigue and in a gorge in the mountains they sat down to rest one day when one of them noticed a curious vein of cement running along the ground shot full of lumps of dull yellow metal they saw that it was gold and that here was a fortune to be acquired in a single day The vein was about as wide as a curbstone, and fully two-thirds of it was pure gold. Every pound of the wonderful cement was worth well-nigh two hundred dollars. Each of the brothers loaded himself with about twenty-five pounds of it, and then they covered up all traces of the vein, made a rude drawing of the locality and the principal landmarks in the vicinity, and started westward again. But troubles thickened about them. In their wanderings, one brother fell and broke his leg, and the others were obliged to go on and leave him to die in the wilderness. Another, worn out and starving, gave up by and by and laid down to die, but after two or three weeks of incredible hardships, the third reached the settlements of California, exhausted, sick, and his mind deranged by his sufferings. He had thrown away all his cement, but a few fragments— but these were sufficient to set everybody wild with excitement however he had had enough of the cement country and nothing could induce him to lead a party thither he was entirely content to work on a farm for wages but he gave whiteman his map and described the cement region as well as he could and thus transferred the curse to that gentleman for when i had my one accidental glimpse of mr w in esmeralda He had been hunting for the lost mine, in hunger and thirst, poverty and sickness, for twelve or thirteen years. Some people believed he had found it, but most people believed he had not. I saw a piece of cement as large as my fist, which was said to have been given to Whiteman by the young German, and it was of a seductive nature. Lumps of virgin gold were as thick in it as raisins in a slice of fruitcake the privilege of working such a mine one week would be sufficient for a man of reasonable desires a new partner of ours a mr higby knew whiteman well by sight and a friend of ours a mr van dorn was well acquainted with him and not only that but had whiteman's promise that he should have a private hint in time to enable him to join the next cement expedition van dorn had promised to extend the hint to us One evening Higby came in greatly excited and said he felt certain he had recognized Whiteman uptown, disguised and in a pretended state of intoxication. In a little while Van Dorn arrived and confirmed the news, and so we gathered in our cabin and with heads close together arranged our plans in impressive whispers. We were to leave town quietly, after midnight, in two or three small parties, so as not to attract attention, and meet at dawn on the divide overlooking Mono Lake eight or nine miles distant. We were to make no noise after starting, and not speak above a whisper under any circumstances. It was believed that for once Whiteman's presence was unknown in the town, and his expedition unsuspected. Our conclave broke up at nine o'clock, and we set about our preparation diligently and with profound secrecy. At eleven o'clock we saddled our horses, hitched them with their long riatas or lassoos, and then— brought out a side of bacon, a sack of beans, a small sack of coffee, some sugar, a hundred pounds of flour in sacks, some tin cups, and a coffee-pot, frying-pan, and some few other necessary articles. All these things were packed on the back of a led horse, and whoever has not been taught, by a Spanish adept, to pack an animal, let him never hope to do the thing by natural smartness. That is impossible." Higby had had some experience, but was not perfect. He put on the pack-saddle, a thing like a sawbuck, piled the property on it, and then wound a rope all over and about it and under it, every which way, taking a hitch in it every now and then, and occasionally surging back on it, till the horse's sides sunk in and he gasped for breath. But every time the lashings grew tight in one place, they loosened in another. We never did get the load tight all over but we got it so that it would do after a fashion and then we started in single file close order and without a word it was a dark night we kept the middle of the road and proceeded in a slow walk past the rows of cabins and whenever a miner came to his door i trembled for fear the light would shine on us and excite curiosity but nothing happened we began the long winding ascent of the canyon toward the divide, and presently the cabins began to grow infrequent, and the intervals between them wider and wider, and then I began to breathe tolerably freely, and feel less like a thief and a murderer. I was in the rear, leading the pack-horse. As the ascent grew steeper, he grew proportionately less satisfied with his cargo, and began to pull back on his riata occasionally, and delay progress. My comrades were passing out of sight in the gloom. I was getting anxious." I coaxed and bullied the pack-horse till I presently got him into a trot, and then the tin cups and pans strung about his person frightened him, and he ran. His riata was wound around the pommel of my saddle, and so, as he went by, he dragged me from my horse, and the two animals traveled briskly on without me. But I was not alone. The loosened cargo tumbled overboard from the pack-horse and fell close to me. It was abreast of almost the last cabin. A miner came out and said,— "'Hullo!' I was thirty steps from him and knew he could not see me. It was so very dark in the shadow of the mountain. So I lay still. Another head appeared in the light of the cabin door, and presently the two men walked toward me. They stopped within ten steps of me, and one said, "'Shh! Listen!' I could not have been in a more distressed state if I had been escaping justice with a price on my head. Then the miners appeared to sit down on a boulder, though I could not see them distinctly enough to be very sure what they did. One said, "'I heard a noise—as plain as I ever heard anything—seemed to be about there.' A stone whizzed by my head. I flattened myself out in the dust like a postage-stamp, and thought to myself if he mended his aim ever so little he would probably hear another noise. In my heart, now, I execrated secret expeditions. I promised myself that this should be my last, though the Sierras were ribbed with cement veins. Then one of the men said, "'I'll tell you what. Welch knew what he was talking about when he said he saw a white man to-day. I heard horses. That was the noise. I am going down to Welch's, right away.' They left, and I was glad. I did not care whither they went. So they went. I was willing they should visit Welch, and the sooner the better. As soon as they closed their cabin door my comrades emerged from the gloom. They had caught the horses and were waiting for a clear coast again. We remounted the cargo on the pack-horse and got under way, and as day broke we reached the divide and joined Van Dorn. Then we journeyed down into the valley of the lake, and feeling secure we halted to cook breakfast, for we were tired and sleepy and hungry. Three hours later The rest of the population filed over the divide in a long procession, and drifted off out of sight around the borders of the lake. Whether or not my accident had produced this result we never knew, but at least one thing was certain—the secret was out, and Whiteman would not enter upon a search for the cement mine this time. We were filled with chagrin. We held a council, and decided to make the best of our misfortune, and enjoy a week's holiday on the borders of the curious lake mono it is sometimes called and sometimes the dead sea of california it is one of the strangest freaks of nature to be found in any land but it is hardly ever mentioned in print and very seldom visited because it lies away off the usual routes of travel and besides is so difficult to get at that only men content to endure the roughest life will consent to take upon themselves the discomforts of such a trip On the morning of our second day, we traveled around to a remote and particularly wild spot on the borders of the lake, where a stream of fresh, ice-cold water entered it from the mountainside, and then we went regularly into camp. We hired a large boat and two shotguns from a lonely ranchman who lived some ten miles further on, and made ready for comfort and recreation. We soon got thoroughly acquainted with the lake and all its peculiarities. End of chapter 37 this is chapter 38 of roughing it this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit librivox.org roughing it by mark twain chapter 38 mono lake lies in a lifeless treeless hideous desert eight thousand feet above the level of the sea and is guarded by mountains two thousand feet higher whose summits are always closed in clouds this solemn silent sailless sea this lonely tenant of the loneliest spot on earth is little graced with the picturesque it is an unpretending expanse of grayish water about a hundred miles in circumference with two islands in its center mere upheavals of rent and scorched and blistered lava snowed over with gray banks and drifts of pumice stone and ashes the winding sheet of the dead volcano whose vast crater the lake has seized upon and occupied the lake is two hundred feet deep and its sluggish waters are so strong with alkali that if you only dip the most hopelessly soiled garment into them once or twice and wring it out It will be found as clean as if it had been through the ablest of washerwomen's hands. While we camped there, our laundry work was easy. We tied the week's washing astern of our boat, and sailed a quarter of a mile, and the job was complete. All to the wringing out. If we threw the water on our heads, and gave them a rubber so, the white lather would pile up three inches high. This water is not good for bruised places and abrasions of the skin. We had a valuable dog.' he had raw places on him he had more raw places on him than sound ones he was the rawest dog i almost ever saw he jumped overboard one day to get away from the flies but it was bad judgment in his condition it would have been just as comfortable to jump into the fire the alkali water nipped him in all the raw places simultaneously and he struck out for the shore with considerable interest he yelped and barked and howled as he went and by the time he got to the shore there was no bark to him, for he had barked the bark all out of his inside, and the alkali water had cleaned the bark all off his outside, and he probably wished he had never embarked in any such enterprise. He ran around and around in circles, and pawed the earth and clawed the air, and threw double somersaults, sometimes backward and sometimes forward, in the most extraordinary manner.' He was not a demonstrative dog as a general thing, but rather of a grave and serious turn of mind, and I never saw him take so much interest in anything before. He finally struck out over the mountains, at a gait which we estimated at about two hundred and fifty miles an hour, and he is going yet. This was about nine years ago. We look for what is left of him along here every day. A white man cannot drink the water of Mono Lake, for it is nearly pure lye it is said that the indians in the vicinity drink it sometimes though it is not improbable for they are among the purest liars i ever saw there will be no additional charge for this joke except to parties requiring an explanation of it this joke has received high commendation from some of the ablest minds of the age there are no fish in mono lake no frogs no snakes no pollywogs nothing in fact that goes to make life desirable Millions of wild ducks and seagulls swim about the surface, but no living thing exists under the surface, except a white feathery sort of worm, one half an inch long, which looks like a bit of white thread frayed out at the sides. If you dip up a gallon of water, you will get about fifteen thousand of these. They give to the water a sort of grayish-white appearance. Then there is a fly, which looks something like our house-fly. These settle on the beach to eat the worms that wash ashore. And any time you can see there a belt of flies an inch deep and six feet wide, and this belt extends clear around the lake, a belt of flies one hundred miles long. If you throw a stone among them, they swarm up so thick that they look dense, like a cloud. You can hold them under the water as long as you please. They do not mind it, they are only proud of it. When you let them go, they pop up to the surface as dry as a patent-office report, and walk off as unconcernedly as if they had been educated especially with a view to affording instructive entertainment to man in that particular way. Providence leaves nothing to go by chance. All things have their uses, and their part, and proper place in nature's economy. The ducks eat the flies, the flies eat the worms, the Indians eat all three, the wild cats eat the Indians. The White folks eat the wild cats, and thus all things are lovely. Mono Lake is a hundred miles in a straight line from the ocean, and between it and the ocean are one or two ranges of mountains. Yet thousands of seagulls go there every season to lay their eggs and rear their young. One would as soon expect to find seagulls in Kansas, and in this connection, let us observe another instance of nature's wisdom the islands in the lake being merely huge masses of lava, coated over with ashes and pumice-stone and utterly innocent of vegetation or anything that would burn, and seagulls' eggs being entirely useless to anybody unless they be cooked, nature has provided an unfailing spring of boiling water on the largest island, and you can put your eggs in there, and in four minutes you can boil them as hard as any statement I have made during the past fifteen years.' Within ten feet of the boiling spring is a spring of pure cold water, sweet and wholesome. So, in that island you get your board and washing free of charge, and if nature had gone further and furnished a nice American hotel clerk, who was crusty and disobliging, and didn't know anything about the timetables, or the railroads, or anything, and was proud of it, I would not wish for a more desirable boarding-house. Half a dozen little mountain brooks flow into Mono Lake, but not a stream of any kind flows out of it it neither rises nor falls apparently and what it does with its surplus water is a dark and bloody mystery there are only two seasons in the region round about mono lake and these are the breaking up of one winter and the beginning of the next more than once in esmeralda i have seen a perfectly blistering morning open up with the thermometer at ninety degrees at eight o'clock and seen the snow fall fourteen inches deep, and that same identical thermometer go down to forty-four degrees under shelter, before nine o'clock at night. Under favorable circumstances it snows at least once in every single month in the year, in the little town of Mono, so uncertain is the climate in summer that a lady who goes out visiting cannot hope to be prepared for all emergencies, unless she takes her fan under one arm and her snowshoes under the other. When they have a fourth of july procession it generally snows on them and they do say that as a general thing when a man calls for a brandy toddy there the barkeeper chops it off with a hatchet and wraps it up in a paper like maple sugar and it is further reported that the old soakers haven't any teeth wore them out eating gin cocktails and brandy punches i do not endorse that statement i simply give it for what it is worth and it is worth well, I should say millions, to any man who can believe it without straining himself. But I do endorse the snow on the Fourth of July, because I know that to be true. End of chapter 38 This is chapter 39 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain, Chapter 39. About seven o'clock, one blistering hot morning, for it was now dead summer time, Higby and I took the boat and started on a voyage of discovery to the two islands. We had often longed to do this, but had been deterred by the fear of storms. For they were frequent and severe enough to capsize an ordinary rowboat like ours without great difficulty. And once capsized, death would ensue in spite of the bravest swimming, for that venomous water would eat a man's eyes out like fire and burn him out inside, too, if he shipped to sea. It was called twelve miles straight out to the islands, a long pull and a warm one. But the morning was so quiet and sunny, and the lake so smooth and glassy and dead that we could not resist the temptation. So we filled two large tin canteens with water, since we were not acquainted with the locality of the spring said to exist on the large island, and started. Higby's brawny muscles gave the boat good speed, but by the time we reached our destination we judged that we had pulled nearer fifteen miles than twelve. We landed on the big island and went ashore. We tried the water in the canteens now, and found that the sun had spoiled it, it was so brackish that we could not drink it. So we poured it out, and began a search for the spring, for thirst augments fast as soon as it is apparent that one has no means at hand of quenching it. The island was a long, moderately high hill of ashes, nothing but gray ashes and pumice-stone, in which we sunk to our knees at every step. And all around the top was a forbidding wall of scorched and blasted rocks. When we reached the top, and got within the wall, we found simply a shallow, far-reaching basin, carpeted with ashes, and here and there a patch of fine sand. In places picturesque jets of steam shot up out of crevices, giving evidence that although this ancient crater had gone out of active business, there was still some fire left in its furnaces. Close to one of these jets of steam stood the only tree on the island, a small pine of most graceful shape and most faultless symmetry. Its color was a brilliant green, for the steam drifted unceasingly through its branches and kept them always moist. It contrasted strangely enough, did this vigorous and beautiful outcast, with its dead and dismal surroundings. It was like a cheerful spirit in a mourning household." We hunted for the spring everywhere, traversing the full length of the island—two or three miles—and crossing it twice, climbing ash-hills patiently, and then sliding down the other side in a sitting posture, ploughing up smothering volumes of grey dust. But we found nothing but solitude, ashes, and a heart-breaking silence. Finally we noticed that the wind had risen, and we forgot our thirst in a solitude of greater importance for, the lake being quiet, we had not taken pains about securing the boat. We hurried back to a point overlooking our landing-place, and then—but mere words cannot describe our dismay—the boat was gone. The chances were that there was not another boat on the entire lake. The situation was not comfortable. In truth, to speak plainly, it was frightful. We were prisoners on a desolate island in aggravating proximity to friends who were for the present helpless to aid us, and what was still more uncomfortable was the reflection that we had neither food nor water. But presently we sighted the boat. It was drifting along leisurely, about fifty yards from shore, tossing in a foamy sea. It drifted, and continued to drift, but at the same safe distance from land, and we walked along abreast it, and waited for fortune to favor us. At the end of an hour it approached a jutting cape, and Higby ran ahead and posted himself, on the utmost verge, and prepared for the assault. If we failed there, there was no hope for us. It was driving gradually shoreward all the time now, but whether it was driving fast enough to make the connection or not was the momentous question. When it got within thirty steps of Higby, I was so excited that I fancied I could hear my own heart beat. When a little later it dragged slowly along and seemed about to go by, only one little yard out of reach, it seemed as if my heart stood still, and when it was exactly abreast of him and began to widen away, and he still standing like a watching statue, I knew my heart did stop. But when he gave a great spring the next instant, and lit fairly in the stern, I discharged a war-whoop that woke the solitudes.' but it dulled my enthusiasm presently when he told me that he had not been caring whether the boat came within jumping distance or not so that it passed within eight or ten yards of him for he had made up his mind to shut his eyes and mouth and swim that trifling distance imbecile that i was i had not thought of that it was only a long swim that could be fatal the sea was running high and the storm increasing it was growing late too three or four in the afternoon. Whether to venture toward the mainland or not was a question of some moment. But we were so distressed by thirst that we decided to try it. And so Higby fell to work, and I took the steering oar. When we had pulled a mile, laboriously, we were evidently in serious peril, for the storm had greatly augmented. The billows ran very high, and were capped with foaming crests. The heavens were hung with black, and the wind blew with great fury." we would have gone back now but we did not dare to turn the boat around because as soon as she got in the trough of the sea she would upset of course our only hope lay in keeping her head on to the seas it was hard work to do this she plunged so and so beat and belabored the billows with her rising and falling bows and now and then one of higby's oars would trip on the top of a wave and the other one would snatch the boat half round in spite of my cumbersome steering apparatus we were drenched by the sprays constantly and the boat occasionally shipped water by and by powerful as my comrade was his great exertions began to tell on him and he was anxious that i should change places with him till he could rest a little but i told him this was impossible for if the steering oar were dropped a moment while we changed the boat would slew around into the trough of the sea capsize and in less than five minutes we would have a hundred gallons of soapsuds in us and be eaten up so quickly that we could not even be present at our own inquest. But things cannot last always. Just as the darkness shut down, we came booming into port, head on. Higby dropped his oars to hurrah, I dropped mine to help. The sea gave the boat a twist, and over she went. The agony that alkali water inflicts on bruises, chafes, and blistered hands is unspeakable, and nothing but greasing all over will modify it but we ate drank and slept well that night notwithstanding in speaking of the peculiarities of mono lake i ought to have mentioned that at intervals all around its shores stand picturesque turret-looking masses and clusters of a whitish coarse-grained rock that resembles inferior mortar dried hard and if one breaks off fragments of this rock he will find perfectly shaped and thoroughly petrified gulls eggs deeply embedded in the mass How did they get there? I simply state the fact, for it is a fact, and leave the geological reader to crack the nut at his leisure, and solve the problem after his own fashion. At the end of a week we adjourned to the Sierras on a fishing excursion, and spent several days in camp under snowy Castle Peak, and fished successfully for trout in a bright, miniature lake whose surface was between ten and eleven thousand feet above the level of the sea cooling ourselves during the hot August noons by sitting on snowbanks ten feet deep, under whose sheltering edges fine grass and dainty flowers flourished luxuriously, and at night entertaining ourselves by almost freezing to death. Then we returned to Mono Lake, and finding that the cement excitement was over for the present, packed up and went back to Esmeralda. Mr. Blue reconnoitred a while, and, not liking the prospect, set out alone for Humboldt about this time occurred a little incident which has always had a sort of interest to me from the fact that it came so near instigating my funeral at a time when an indian attack had been expected the citizens hid their gunpowder where it would be safe and yet convenient to hand when wanted a neighbor of ours hid six cans of rifle powder in the bake oven of an old discarded cooking stove which stood on the open ground near a frame outhouse or shed and from and after that day never thought of it again. We hired a half-tamed Indian to do some washing for us, and he took up quarters under the shed with his tub. The ancient stove reposed within six feet of him, and before his face. Finally it occurred to him that hot water would be better than cold, and he went out and fired up under that forgotten powder magazine and set on a kettle of water. Then he returned to his tub. I entered the shed presently, and threw down some more clothes and was about to speak to him when the stove blew up with a prodigious crash, and disappeared, leaving not a splinter behind. Fragments of it fell in the streets full two hundred yards away. Nearly a third of the shed roof over our heads was destroyed, and one of the stove lids, after cutting a small stanchion half in two in front of the Indian, whizzed between us and drove partly through the weather-boarding beyond. I was as white as a sheet, and as weak as a kitten and speechless. But the Indian betrayed no trepidation, no distress, not even discomfort. He simply stopped washing, leaned forward, and surveyed the clean, blank ground a moment, and then remarked, "'Hmph! Damn stove! heap gone!' and resumed his scrubbing as placidly as if it were an entirely customary thing for a stove to do. I will explain that heap is Injun English for very much. The reader will perceive the exhaustive expressiveness of it in the present instance. End of chapter 39. This is chapter 40 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. CHAPTER 40 I now come to a curious episode, the most curious, I think, that had yet accented my slothful, valueless, heedless career. Out of a hillside toward the upper end of the town projected a wall of reddish-looking quartz croppings, the exposed comb of a silver-bearing ledge that extended deep down into the earth, of course. It was owned by a company entitled the Wide West— There was a shaft sixty or seventy feet deep on the underside of the croppings, and everybody was acquainted with the rock that came from it, and tolerably rich rock it was, too, but nothing extraordinary. I will remark here that, although to the inexperienced stranger all the quartz of a particular district looks about alike, an old resident of the camp can take a glance at a mixed pile of rock, separate the fragments, and tell you which mine each came from, as easily as a confectioner can separate and classify the various kinds and qualities of candy in a mixed heap of the article. All at once the town was thrown into a state of extraordinary excitement. In mining parlance the wide west had struck it rich. Everybody went to see the new developments, and for some days there was such a crowd of people about the wide west shaft that a stranger would have supposed there was a mass meeting in session there No other topic was discussed but the rich strike, and nobody thought or dreamed about anything else. Every man brought away a specimen, ground it up in a hand-mortar, washed it out in his horn-spoon, and glared speechless upon the marvelous result. It was not hard rock, but black, decomposed stuff which could be crumbled in the hand like a baked potato, and when spread out on a paper exhibited a thick sprinkling of gold and particles of native silver. Higby brought a handful to the cabin, and when he had washed it out his amazement was beyond description. Wide West Stock soared skywards. It was said that repeated offers had been made for it at a thousand dollars a foot, and promptly refused. We have all had the blues, the mere sky-blues, but mine were indigo now, because I did not own in the Wide West. The world seemed hollow to me, and existence a grief." I lost my appetite, and ceased to take an interest in anything. Still, I had to stay, and listen to other people's rejoicings, because I had no money to get out of the camp with. The Wide West Company put a stop to the carrying away of specimens, and well they might, for every handful of the ore was worth a sum of some consequence. To show the exceeding value of the ore, I will remark that a sixteen hundred pounds parcel of it was sold, just as it lay, at the mouth of the shaft at one dollar a pound and the man who bought it packed it on mules a hundred and fifty or two hundred miles over the mountains to san francisco satisfied that it would yield at a rate that would richly compensate him for his trouble the wide west people also commanded their foremen to refuse any but their own operatives permission to enter the mine at any time or for any purpose i kept up my blue meditations and higby kept up a deal of thinking too but of a different sort. He puzzled over the rock, examined it with a glass, inspected it in different lights and from different points of view, and after each experiment delivered himself in a soliloquy of one and the same unvarying opinion in the same unvarying formula. It is not wide-west rock. He said once or twice that he meant to have a look into the wide-west shaft if he got shot for it. I was wretched, and did not care whether he got a look into it or not. He failed that day, and tried again at night—failed again—got up at dawn and tried and failed again. Then he lay in ambush in the sagebrush, hour after hour, waiting for the two or three hands to adjourn to the shade of a boulder for dinner—made a start once, but was premature. One of the men came back for something—tried it again. But when almost at the mouth of the shaft, another of the men rose up from behind the boulder as if to reconnoiter, and he dropped on the ground and lay quiet. Presently he crawled on his hands and knees to the mouth of the shaft, gave a quick glance around, then seized the rope and slid down the shaft. He disappeared in the gloom of a side drift, just as a head appeared in the mouth of the shaft, and somebody shouted, "'Ho!' which he did not answer. He was not disturbed any more. An hour later he entered the cabin, hot, red, and ready to burst with smothered excitement, and exclaimed in a stage whisper, "'I knew it! We are rich! It's a blind lead!' I thought the very earth reeled under me. Doubt, conviction, doubt again, exaltation, hope, amazement, belief, unbelief. Every emotion imaginable swept in wild procession through my heart and brain, and I could not speak a word!' After a moment or two of this mental fury, I shook myself to rights and said, "'Say it again. It's blind lead. Cal, let's—let's burn the house or kill somebody. Let's get out of where there's room to hurrah. But what is the use? It is a hundred times too good to be true. It's a blind lead for a million. Hanging wall, foot wall, clay casings, everything complete.' He swung his hat and gave three cheers, and I cast doubt to the winds and chimed in with a will, for I was worth a million dollars, and did not care whether school kept or not. But perhaps I ought to explain. A blind lead is a lead or ledge that does not crop out above the ground. A miner does not know where to look for such leads, but they are often stumbled upon by accident in the course of driving a tunnel or sinking a shaft. Higby knew the wide west rock perfectly well, and the more he had examined the new developments, the more he was satisfied that the ore could not have come from the wide west vein. And so had it occurred to him alone, of all the camp, that there was a blind lead down in the shaft, and that even the wide west people themselves did not suspect it. He was right. When he went down the shaft, he found that the blind lead held its independent way through the wide west vein cutting it diagonally, and that it was enclosed in its own well-defined casing-rocks and clay. Hence it was public property. Both leads being perfectly well-defined, it was easy for any miner to see which one belonged to the Wide West and which did not. We thought it well to have a strong friend, and therefore we brought the foreman of the Wide West to our cabin that night, and revealed the great surprise to him. Higby said, We are going to take possession of this blind lead, record it, and establish ownership, and then forbid the Wide West Company to take out any more of the rock. You cannot help your company in this matter. Nobody can help them. I will go into the shaft with you, and prove to your entire satisfaction that it is a blind lead. Now we propose to take you in with us, and claim the blind lead in our three names. What do you say?' What could a man say who had an opportunity to simply stretch forth his hand and take possession of a fortune, without risk of any kind, and without wronging any one, or attaching the least taint of dishonor to his name? He could only say, "'Agreed.'" The notice was put up that night, and duly spread upon the recorder's books before ten o'clock. We claimed two hundred feet each, six hundred feet in all, the smallest and compactest organization in the district, and the easiest to manage. No one can be so thoughtless as to suppose that we slept that night. Higby and I went to bed at midnight, but it was only to lie broad awake and think, dream, scheme. The floorless, tumble-down cabin was a palace, the ragged gray blankets silk, the furniture rosewood and mahogany. Each new splendor that burst out of my visions of the future whirled me bodily over in bed or jerked me to a sitting posture, just as if an electric battery had been applied to me. We shot fragments of conversation back and forth at each other. Once, Higby said, "'When are you going home to the States?' "'Tomorrow,' with an evolution or two, ending with a sitting position. "'Well, no, but next month, at furthest.' "'We'll go in the same steamer.' "'Agreed.' A pause. "'Steamer of the tenth? "'Yes. No, the first. "'All right.' Another pause. "'Where are you going to live?' said Higby. "'San Francisco.' "'That's me.' Pause. "'Too high. Too much climbing,' from Higby. "'What is?' "'I was thinking of Russian Hill. Building a house up there. Too much climbing? Shan't you keep a carriage?' "'Of course. I forgot that.' Pause. "'Cal, what kind of a house are you going to build?' "'I was thinking about that. Three-story and an attic. "'But what kind?' "'Well, I don't hardly know. Brick, I suppose.' "'Brick? Bosh!' "'Why?' What is your idea? Brown stone front, French plate glass, billiard room off the dining room, statuary and paintings, shrubbery and two acre grass plat, greenhouse, iron dog on the front stoop, gray horses, landau, and uh, a coachman with a bug on his hat. By George! A long pause. Cal, when are you going to Europe? Well, I hadn't thought of that. When are you? In the spring going to be gone all summer? All summer. I shall remain there three years. No. But are you in earnest? Indeed I am. I will go along, too. Why, of course you will. What part of Europe shall you go to? All parts. France, England, Germany, Spain, Italy, Switzerland, Syria, Greece, Palestine, Arabia, Persia, Egypt, all over, everywhere. I'm agreed. All right. Won't it be a swell trip, We'll spend forty or fifty thousand dollars trying to make it one, anyway!" Another long pause. Higby, we owe the butcher six dollars, and he has been threatening to stop our— HANG THE BUTCHER! Amen! And so it went on. By three o'clock we found it was no use, and so we got up and played cribbage and smoked pipes till sunrise. It was my week to cook. I always hated cooking. Now I abhorred it. The news was all over town. The former excitement was great, this one was greater still. I walked the streets serene and happy. Higby said the foreman had been offered two hundred thousand dollars for his third of the mine. I said I would like to see myself selling for any such price. My ideas were lofty, my figure was a million. Still, I honestly believe that if I had been offered it, it would have had no other effect than to make me hold off for more. I found abundant enjoyment in being rich. A man offered me a $300 horse, and wanted to take my simple, unendorsed note for it. That brought the most realizing sense I had yet had that I was actually rich—beyond shadow of doubt. It was followed by numerous other evidences of a similar nature, among which I may mention the fact of the butcher leaving us a double supply of meat and saying nothing about money by the laws of the district the locators or claimants of a ledge were obliged to do a fair and reasonable amount of work on their new property within ten days after the date of the location or the property was forfeited and anybody could go and seize it that chose so we determined to go to work the next day about the middle of the afternoon as i was coming out of the post-office i met a mr gardiner who told me that captain john nye was lying dangerously ill at his place the nine-mile ranch and that he and his wife were not able to give him nearly as much care and attention as his case demanded. I said if he would wait for me a moment, I would go down and help in the sick-room. I ran to the cabin to tell Higby. He was not there, but I left a note on the table for him, and a few minutes later I left town in Gardiner's wagon. End of chapter 40 This is Chapter Forty-One of *Roughing It*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. *Roughing It* by Mark Twain, Chapter Forty-One. Captain Nye was very ill indeed, with spasmodic rheumatism but the old gentleman was himself which is to say he was kind-hearted and agreeable when comfortable but a singularly violent wildcat when things did not go well he would be smiling along pleasantly enough when a sudden spasm of his disease would take him and he would go out of his smile into a perfect fury he would groan and wail and howl with the anguish and fill up the odd chinks with the most elaborate profanity that strong convictions and a fine fancy could contrive with fair opportunity he could swear very well and handle his adjectives with considerable judgment but when the spasm was on him it was painful to listen to him he was so awkward however i had seen him nurse a sick man himself and put up patiently with the inconveniences of the situation, and consequently I was willing that he should have full license now that his own turn had come. He could not disturb me, with all his raving and ranting, for my mind had work on hand, and it labored on diligently, night and day, whether my hands were idle or employed. I was altering and amending the plans for my house, and thinking over the propriety of having the billiard-room in the attic instead of on the same floor with the dining-room. Also, I was trying to decide between green and blue for the upholstery of the drawing-room, for, although my preference was blue, I feared it was a color that would be too easily damaged by dust and sunlight. Likewise, while I was content to put the coachman in a modest livery, I was uncertain about a footman. I needed one, and was even resolved to have one, but wished he could properly appear and perform his functions out of livery— for I somewhat dreaded so much show, and yet, inasmuch as my late grandfather had had a coachman and such things, but no liveries, I felt rather drawn to beat him, or beat his ghost at any rate. I was also systematizing the European trip, and managed to get it all laid out, as to route and length of time to be devoted to it, everything with one exception, namely, whether to cross the desert from Cairo to Jerusalem per camel, or go by sea to Beirut, and thence down through the country per caravan. Meantime I was writing to the friends at home every day, instructing them concerning all my plans and intentions, and directing them to look up a handsome homestead for my mother, and agree upon a price for it against my coming, and also directing them to sell my share of the Tennessee land, and tender the proceeds to the Widows' and Orphans' Fund of the typographical union of which I had long been a member in good standing." This Tennessee land had been in the possession of the family many years, and promised to confer high fortune upon us some day. It still promises it, but in a less violent way. When I had been nursing the captain nine days, he was somewhat better, but very feeble. During the afternoon we lifted him into a chair and gave him an alcoholic vapor-bath, and then set about putting him on the bed again. We had to be exceedingly careful, for the least jar produced pain. Gardener had his shoulders and I his legs. In an unfortunate moment I stumbled, and the patient fell heavily on the bed in an agony of torture. I never heard a man swear so in my life. He raved like a maniac and tried to snatch a revolver from the table, but I got it. He ordered me out of the house and swore a world of oaths that he would kill me wherever he caught me when he got on his feet again. It was simply a passing fury and meant nothing. I knew he would forget it in an hour— and maybe be sorry for it, too. But it angered me a little, at the moment. So much so, indeed, that I determined to go back to Esmeralda. I thought he was able to get along alone now, since he was on the warpath. I took supper, and as soon as the moon rose, began my nine-mile journey on foot. Even millionaires needed no horses in those days, for a mere nine-mile jaunt without baggage. As I raised the hill overlooking the town, it lacked fifteen minutes of twelve— I glanced at the hill over beyond the canyon, and in the bright moonlight saw what appeared to be about half the population of the village massed on and around the wide west croppings. My heart gave an exulting bound, and I said to myself, They have made a new strike tonight, and struck it richer than ever, no doubt. I started over there, but gave it up. I said the strick would keep, and I had climbed hill enough for one night. I went on down through the town and as I was passing a little German bakery a woman ran out and begged me to come in and help her. She said her husband had a fit. I went in, and judged she was right. He appeared to have a hundred of them, compressed into one. Two Germans were there, trying to hold him, and not making much of a success of it. I ran up the street half a block or so, and routed out a sleeping doctor, brought him down half-dressed, and we four wrestled with the maniac, and doctored, drenched, and bled him for more than an hour and the poor German woman did the crying. He grew quiet now, and the doctor and I withdrew and left him to his friends. It was a little after one o'clock. As I entered the cabin door, tired but jolly, the dingy light of a tallow candle revealed Higby, sitting by the pine table, gazing stupidly at my note, which he held in his fingers, and looking pale, old, and haggard. I halted and looked at him. He looked at me, stolidly. I said, "'Higby, what—what is it?' We're ruined. We didn't do the work. The blind leads relocated. It was enough. I sat down sick, grieved, broken-hearted indeed. A minute before I was rich and brimful of vanity. I was a pauper now, and very meek. We sat still an hour, busy with thought, busy with vain and useless self-upbraidings, busy with, why didn't I do this, why didn't I do that, but neither spoke a word. Then we dropped into mutual explanations, and the mystery was cleared away. It came out that Higby had depended on me as I had on him, and as both of us had on the foreman. The folly of it—it it was the first time that ever stayed, and steadfast Higby had left an important matter to chance, or failed to be true to his full share of a responsibility. But he had never seen my note till this moment and this moment was the first time he had been in the cabin since the day he had seen me last. He also had left a note for me, on that same fatal afternoon, had ridden up on horseback, and looked through the window, and, being in a hurry and not seeing me, had tossed the note into the cabin through a broken pane. Here it was, on the floor, where it had remained undisturbed for nine days. Don't fail to do the work before the ten days expire, W. has passed through and given me notice. I am to join him at Mono Lake, and we shall go on from there to-night. He says he will find it this time, sure. Cal. W. meant Whiteman, of course—that thrice-accursed cement. That was the way of it. An old miner like Higby could no more withstand the fascination of a mysterious mining excitement like this cement foolishness than he would refrain from eating when he was famishing— "'Higby had been dreaming about the marvellous cement for months, and now, against his better judgment, he had gone off and taken the chances, on my keeping secure a mine worth a million undiscovered cement veins. They had not been followed this time. His riding out of town in broad daylight was such a commonplace thing to do that it had not attracted any attention. He said they prosecuted their search in the fastnesses of the mountains during nine days without success. They could not find the cement.' Then a ghastly fear came over him that something might have happened to prevent the doing of the necessary work to hold the blind deed, though indeed he thought such a thing hardly possible, and forthwith he started home with all speed. He would have reached Esmeralda in time, but his horse broke down and he had to walk a great part of the distance. And so it happened that as he came into Esmeralda by one road I entered it by another, his was the superior energy, however, for he went straight to the wide west, instead of turning aside, as I had done, and he arrived there about five or ten minutes too late. The notice was already up, the relocation of our mine completed beyond recall, and the crowd rapidly dispersing. He learned some facts before he left the ground. The foreman had not been seen about the streets since the night we had located the mine. A telegram had called him to California on a matter of life and death, it was said, At any rate he had done no work, and the watchful eyes of the community were taking note of the fact. At midnight of this woeful tenth day the ledge would be relocatable, and by eleven o'clock the hill was black with men prepared to do the relocating. That was the crowd I had seen when I fancied a new strike had been made—idiot that I was. We three had the same right to relocate the lead that other people had, provided we were quick enough. As midnight was announced, fourteen men, duly armed and ready to back their proceedings, put up their notice and proclaimed their ownership of the blind lead under the new name of Johnson. But A. D. Allen, our partner, the foreman, put in a sudden appearance about that time, with a cocked revolver in his hand, and said his name must be added to the list, or he would thin out the Johnson Company some. He was a manly, splendid, determined fellow, and known to be as good as his word therefore a compromise was effected. They put in his name for a hundred feet, reserving to themselves the customary two hundred feet each. Such was the history of the night's events, as Higby gathered from a friend on the way home. Higby and I cleared out on a new mining excitement the next morning, glad to get away from the scene of our sufferings, and after a month or two of hardship and disappointment returned to Esmeralda once more Then we learned that the Wide West and the Johnson companies had consolidated, that the stock, thus united, comprised five thousand feet, or shares, that the foreman, apprehending tiresome litigation, and considering such a huge concern unwieldy, had sold his hundred feet for ninety thousand dollars in gold, and gone home to the States to enjoy it. If the stock was worth such a gallant figure, with five thousand shares in the corporation, it makes me dizzy to think what it would have been worth with only our original six hundred in it. It was the difference between six hundred men owning a house and five thousand owning it. We would have been millionaires if we'd only worked with pick and spade one little day on our property, and so secured our ownership. It reads like a wild, fancy sketch, but the evidence of many witnesses, and likewise that of the official records of Esmeralda District, is easily obtainable in proof that it is a true history. I can always have it to say that I was absolutely and unquestionably worth a million dollars, once, for ten days a year ago my esteemed and in every way estimable old millionaire partner higby wrote me from an obscure little mining camp in california that after nine or ten years of buffetings and hard striving he was at last in a position where he could command twenty five hundred dollars and said he meant to go into the fruit business in a modest way how such a thought would have insulted him the night we lay in our cabin planning european trips and brownstone houses on Russian Hill. END OF CHAPTER FORTY-ONE This is Chapter 42 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain Chapter 42 WHAT TO DO NEXT? "'It was a momentous question. I had gone out into the world to shift for myself at the age of thirteen, for my father had endorsed for friends, and although he left us a sumptuous legacy of pride in his fine Virginian stock and its national distinction, I presently found that I could not live on that alone without occasional bread to wash it down with. I had gained a livelihood in various vocations, but had not dazzled anybody with my successes.' Still, the list was before me, and the amplest liberty in the matter of choosing, provided I wanted to work—which I did not, after being so wealthy—I had once been a grocery clerk for one day, but had consumed so much sugar in that time that I was relieved from further duty by the proprietor—said he wanted me outside, so that he could have my custom. I had studied law an entire week, and then given it up, because it was so prosy and tiresome. I had engaged briefly in the study of blacksmithing, but wasted so much time trying to fix the bellows so that it would blow itself that the master turned me adrift in disgrace, and told me I would come to no good. I had been a bookseller's clerk for a while, but the customers bothered me so much I could not read with any comfort, and so the proprietor gave me a furlough and forgot to put a limit to it. I had clerked in a drugstore part of a summer, but my prescriptions were unlucky and we appeared to sell more stomach-pumps than soda-water, so I had to go. I had made of myself a tolerable printer, under the impression that I would be another Franklin some day, but somehow had missed the connection thus far. There was no berth open in the Esmeralda Union, and, besides, I had always been such a slow compositor that I looked with envy upon the achievements of apprentices of two years' standing and when I took a take, foremen were in the habit of suggesting that it would be wanted some time during the year. I was a good average St. Louis and New Orleans pilot, and by no means ashamed of my abilities in that line. Wages were two hundred and fifty dollars a month, and no board to pay, and I did long to stand behind a wheel again, and never roam any more. But I had been making such an ass of myself lately, in grandiloquent letters home about my blind lead and my European excursion, that I did what many and many a poor disappointed miner had done before—said, it is all over with me now, and I will never go back home to be pitied and snubbed. I had been a private secretary, a silver miner, and a silver mill operative, and amounted to less than nothing in each—and now, what to do next? I yielded to Higby's appeals, and consented to try the mining once more. We climbed far up on the mountainside, and went to work on a little rubbishy claim of ours that had a shaft on it eight feet deep. Higby descended into it, and worked bravely with his pick, until he had loosened up a deal of rock and dirt, and I went down with a long-handled shovel—the most awkward invention yet contrived by man—to throw it out. You must brace the shovel forward with the side of your knee till it is full, and then, with a skillful toss, throw it backward over your left shoulder. I made the toss, and landed the mess just on the edge of the shaft, and it all came back on my head and down the back of my neck. I never said a word, but climbed out and walked home. I inwardly resolved that I would starve before I would make a target of myself and shoot rubbish at it with a long-handled shovel. I sat down in the cabin gave myself up to solid misery, so to speak. Now, in pleasanter days, I had amused myself with writing letters to the chief paper of the Territory, the Virginia Daily Territorial Enterprise, and had always been surprised when they appeared in print. My good opinion of the editors had steadily declined, for it seemed to me that they might have found something better to fill up with than my literature. I had found a letter in the post office as I came home from the hillside, and finally I opened it. Eureka! Never did know what Eureka meant, but it seems to be as proper a word to heave in as any, when no other that sounds pretty, offers. It was a deliberate offer to me of twenty-five dollars a week to come up to Virginia and be city editor of the Enterprise. I would have challenged the publisher in the blind lead days. I wanted to fall down and worship him now. Twenty-five dollars a week. It looked like bloated luxury— a fortune, a sinful and lavish waste of money. But my transports cooled when I thought of my inexperience and consequent unfitness for the position, and straightway on top of this my long array of failures rose up before me. Yet if I refused this place I must presently become dependent upon somebody for my bread, a thing necessarily distasteful to a man who had never experienced such a humiliation since he was thirteen years old, not much to be proud of, since it is so common, but then it was all I had to be proud of. So I was scared into being a city editor. I would have declined otherwise. Necessity is the mother of taking chances. I do not doubt that if, at that time, I had been offered a salary to translate the Talmud from the original Hebrew, I would have accepted, albeit with diffidence and some misgivings, and thrown as much variety into it as I could for the money. I went up to Virginia and entered upon my new vocation. I was a rusty-looking city editor, I am free to confess, coatless, slouch hat, blue woolen shirt, pantaloons stuffed into boot-tops, whiskered half down to the waist, and the universal navy revolver slung to my belt. But I secured a more Christian costume and discarded the revolver. I had never had occasion to kill anybody, nor ever felt a desire to do so but had worn the thing in deference to popular sentiment, and in order that I might not, by its absence, be offensively conspicuous and a subject of remark. But the other editors and all the printers carried revolvers. I asked the chief editor and proprietor, Mr. Goodman, I will call him, since it describes him as well as any name could do, for some instructions with regard to my duties, and he told me to go all over town and ask all sorts of people all sorts of questions and make notes of the information gained, write them out for publication. And he added, Never say, We learn so-and-so, or, It is reported, or, It is rumored, or, We understand so-and-so, but go to the headquarters and get the absolute facts, and then speak out and say, It is so-and-so. Otherwise, people will not put confidence in your news. Unassailable certainty is the thing that gives a newspaper the firmest and most valuable reputation." It was the whole thing in a nutshell, and to this day, when I find a reporter commencing his article with, we understand, I gather a suspicion that he has not taken as much pains to inform himself as he ought to have done. I moralize well, but I did not always practice well, when I was a city editor. I let fancy get the upper hand of fact too often, when there was a dearth of news. I can never forget my first day's experience as a reporter I wandered about town, questioning everybody, boring everybody, and finding out that nobody knew anything. At the end of five hours my notebook was still barren. I spoke to Mr. Goodman. He said, "'Dan used to make a good thing out of the hay-wagons in a dry time, when there were no fires or inquests. Are there no hay-wagons in front of the truckee? If there are, you might speak of the renewed activity and all that sort of thing. In the hay business, you know.' It isn't sensational or exciting, but it fills up and looks business-like. I canvassed the city again and found one wretched old hay truck dragging in from the country, but I made affluent use of it. I multiplied it by sixteen, brought it into town from sixteen different directions, made sixteen separate items out of it, and got up such another sweat about hay as Virginia City had never seen in the world before. This was encouraging two non nonpareil columns had to be filled, and I was getting along. Presently, when things began to look dismal again, a desperado killed a man in a saloon, and joy returned once more. I never was so glad over any mere trifle before in my life. I said to the murderer, "'Sir, you are a stranger to me, but you have done me a kindness this day which I can never forget. If whole years of gratitude can be to you any slight compensation, they shall be yours.' I was in trouble, and you have relieved me nobly, and at a time when all seemed dark and drear. Count me your friend from this time forth, for I am not a man to forget a favor. If I did not really say that to him, I at least felt a sort of itching desire to do it. I wrote up the murder with a hungry attention to details, and when it was finished, experienced but one regret, namely that they had not hanged my benefactor on the spot, so that I could work him up, too.' Next I discovered some emigrant wagons going into camp on the plaza, and found that they had lately come through the hostile Indian country, and had fared rather roughly. I made the best of the item that the circumstances permitted, and felt that if I were not confined within rigid limits by the presence of the reporters of the other papers, I could add particulars that would make the article much more interesting. However, I found one wagon that was going on to California and made some judicious inquiries of the proprietor. When I learned, through his short and surly answers to my cross-questioning, that he was certainly going on and would not be in the city next day to make trouble, I got ahead of the other papers, for I took down his list of names and added his party to the killed and wounded. Having more scope here, I put this wagon through an Indian fight that to this day has no parallel in history. My two columns were filled when i read them over in the morning i felt that i had found my legitimate occupation at last i reasoned within myself that news and stirring news too was watto paper needed and i felt that i was particularly endowed with the ability to furnish it mr goodman said that i was as good a reporter as dan i desired no higher commendation with encouragement like that I felt that I could take my pen and murder all the immigrants on the plains if need be and the interests of the paper demanded it. End of chapter 42. This is chapter 43 of Ruffing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Ruffing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 43. However, as I grew better acquainted with the business, and learned the run of the sources of information, I ceased to require the aid of fancy to any large extent, and became able to fill my columns without diverging noticeably from the domain of fact. I struck up friendships with the reporters of the other journals, and we swapped regulars with each other, and thus economized work. Regulars are permanent sources of news, like courts, bullion returns, clean-ups at the courts' mills, and inquests. Inasmuch as everybody went armed, we had an inquest about every day, and so this department was naturally set down among the regulars. We had lively papers in those days. My great competitor among the reporters was Boggs of the Union. He was an excellent reporter. Once in three or four months he would get a little intoxicated— but as a general thing he was a wary and cautious drinker, although always ready to tamper a little with the enemy. He had the advantage of me in one thing. He could get the monthly public school report, and I could not, because the principal hated the enterprise. One snowy night when the report was due, I started out sadly wondering how I was going to get it. Presently, a few steps up the almost deserted street, I stumbled on Boggs, and asked him where he was going. "'After the school report. I'll go along with you.' "'No, sir. I'll excuse you. Just as you say.' A saloon-keeper's boy passed by with a steaming pitcher of hot punch, and Boggs snuffed the fragrance gratefully. He gazed fondly after the boy, and saw him start up the Enterprise stairs. I said, I wish you could help me get that school business, but since you can't, I must run up to the union office and see if I can get them to let me have a proof of it after they have it set up, though I don't begin to suppose they will. Good night. Hold on a minute. I don't mind getting the report and sitting around with the boys a little while you copy it, if you're willing to drop down to the principals with me. Now you talk like a rational being. Come along.' We ploughed a couple of blocks through the snow, got the report, and returned to our office. It was a short document, and soon copied. Meantime Boggs helped himself to the punch. I gave the manuscript back to him, and we started out to get an inquest, for we had heard pistol-shots nearby. We got the particulars with little loss of time, for it was only an inferior sort of barroom murder, and of little interest to the public, and then we separated. Away at three o'clock in the morning, when we had gone to press, and were having a relaxing concert as usual—for some of the printers were good singers, and others good performers on the guitar, and on that atrocity the accordion—the proprietor of the union strode in, and desired to know if anybody had heard anything of Boggs or the school report. We stated the case, and all turned out to help hunt for the delinquent. We found him standing on a table in a saloon, with an old tin lantern in one hand and a school report in the other, haranguing a gang of intoxicated Cornish miners on the iniquity of squandering the public monies on education, when hundreds and hundreds of honest, hard-working men are literally starving for whiskey. Riotous applause. He had been assisting in a regal spree with those parties for hours. We dragged him away and put him to bed. Of course, there was no school report in the Union, and Boggs held me accountable, though I was innocent of any intention or desire to compass its absence from that paper, and was as sorry as any one that the misfortune had occurred. But we were perfectly friendly. The day that the school report was next due, the proprietor of the Genesee mine furnished us a buggy, and asked us to go down and write something about the property a very common request, and one always gladly acceded to when people furnished buggies, for we were as fond of pleasure excursions as other people. In due time we arrived at the mine—nothing but a hole in the ground, ninety feet deep, and no way of getting down into it, but by holding on to a rope and being lowered with a windlass. The workmen had just gone off somewhere to supper. I was not strong enough to lower Boggs' bulk, so I took an unlighted candle in my teeth made a loop for my foot in the end of the rope, implored Boggs not to go to sleep or let the windlass get the start of him, and then swung out over the shaft. I reached the bottom, muddy and bruised about the elbows, but safe. I lit the candle, made an examination of the rock, selected some specimens, and shouted to Boggs to hoist away. No answer. Presently a head appeared in the circle of daylight, away aloft, and a voice came down, are you all set? All set. Hoist away. Are you comfortable? Perfectly. Could you wait a little? Oh, uh, certainly. Uh, no particular hurry. Well, good-bye. Why? Where are you going? After the school report." And he did. I stayed down there an hour and surprised the workmen when they hauled up and found a man on the rope instead of a bucket of rock. I walked home, too—five miles uphill. We had no school report next morning, but the union had. Six months after my entry into journalism, the grand flush times of Silverland began, and they continued with unabated splendor for three years. All difficulty about filling up the local department ceased, and the only trouble now— was how to make the lengthened columns hold the world of incidents and happenings that came to our literary net every day. Virginia had grown to the livest town, for its age and population, that America had ever produced. The sidewalks swarmed with people, to such an extent, indeed, that it was generally no easy matter to stem the human tide. The streets themselves were just as crowded with quartz wagons freight teams, and other vehicles. The procession was endless. So great was the pack, that buggies frequently had to wait half an hour for an opportunity to cross the principal street. Joy sat on every countenance, and there was a glad, almost fierce intensity in every eye that told of the money-getting schemes that were seething in every brain, and the high hope that held sway in every heart. Money was as plenty as dust." every individual considered himself wealthy and a melancholy countenance was nowhere to be seen there were military companies fire companies brass bands banks hotels theatres hurdy-gurdy houses wide-open gambling palaces political pow-wows civic processions street fights murders inquests riots a whiskey mill every fifteen steps a board of aldermen a mayor a city surveyor a city engineer a chief of the fire department with first second and third assistants a chief of police city marshal and a large police force two boards of mining brokers a dozen breweries and half a dozen jails and station-houses in full operation and some talk of building a church. The flush times were in magnificent flower. Large fireproof brick buildings were going up in the principal streets, and the wooden suburbs were spreading out in all directions. Town lots soared up to prices that were amazing. The great Comstock lode stretched its opulent length straight through the town from north to south, and every mine on it was in diligent process of development. One of these mines alone employed six hundred and seventy-five men, and in the matter of election the adage was, "'As the gould and curry goes, so goes the city.' Labouring men's wages were four and six dollars a day, and they worked in three shifts, or gangs, and the blasting and picking and shoveling went on without ceasing night and day. The city of Virginia roosted royally midway up the steep side of Mount Davidson. 7,200 feet above the level of the sea, and in the clear Nevada atmosphere, was visible from a distance of fifty miles. It claimed a population of 15,000 to 18,000, and all day long half of this little army swarmed the streets like bees, and the other half swarmed among the drifts and tunnels of the Comstock, hundreds of feet down in the earth, directly under those same streets. Often we felt our chairs jar, and heard the faint boom of a blast down in the bowels of the earth under the office. The mountainside was so steep that the entire town had a slant to it like a roof. Each street was a terrace, and from each to the next street below the descent was forty or fifty feet. The fronts of the houses were level with the street they faced, but their rear first floors were propped on lofty stilts. A man could stand at a rear first-floor window of a C Street house, and look down the chimneys of the row of houses below him, facing D Street. It was a laborious climb, in that thin atmosphere, to ascend from D to A Street, and you were panting and out of breath when you got there. But you could turn around and go down again like a house of fire, so to speak. The atmosphere was so rarefied on account of the great altitude, that one's blood lay near the surface always and the scratch of a pin was a disaster worth worrying about, for the chances were that a grievous erysipelas would ensue. But to offset this, the thin atmosphere seemed to carry healing to gunshot wounds, and therefore to simply shoot your adversary through both lungs was a thing not likely to afford you any permanent satisfaction, for he would be nearly certain to be around looking for you within the month, and not with an opera-glass, either. From Virginia's airy situation one could look over a vast, far-reaching panorama of mountain ranges and deserts, and whether the day was bright or overcast, whether the sun was rising or setting, or flaming in the zenith, or whether night and the moon held sway, the spectacle was always impressive and beautiful. Over your head Mount Davidson lifted its grey dome, and before and below you a rugged canyon clove the battlemented hills making a sombre gateway through which a soft-tinted desert was glimpsed, with a silver thread of a river winding through it, bordered with trees which many miles of distance diminished to a delicate fringe, and still further away the snowy mountains rose up and stretched their long barrier to the filmy horizon, far enough beyond a lake that burned in the desert like a fallen sun, though that, itself, lay fifty miles removed. Look from your window where you would, there was fascination in the picture. At rare intervals, but very rare, there were clouds in our skies, and then the setting sun would gild and flush and glorify this mighty expanse of scenery with a bewildering pomp of color that held the eye like a spell and moved the spirit like music. End of chapter 43 this is chapter 44 of roughing it this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit librivox.org roughing it by mark twain chapter 44 my salary was increased to 40 dollars a week but i seldom drew it i had plenty of other resources and what were two broad twenty-dollar gold pieces to a man who had his pockets full of such, and a cumbersome abundance of bright half-dollars besides. Paper money has never come into use on the Pacific coast. Reporting was lucrative, and every man in the town was lavish with his money and his feet. The city and all the great mountainside were riddled with mining shafts. There were more mines than miners.' True, not ten of these mines were yielding rock worth hauling to a mill, but everybody said, Wait till the shaft gets down where the ledge comes in solid, and then you'll see. So nobody was discouraged. These were nearly all wildcat mines, and wholly worthless, but nobody believed it then. The Ophir, the Gould and Curry, the Mexican, and other great mines on the Comstock lead in Virginia and Gold Hill were turning out huge piles of rich rock every day, and every man believed that his little wildcat claim was as good as any on the main lead, and would infallibly be worth a thousand dollars a foot when he got down where it came in solid. Poor fellow, he was blessedly blind to the fact that he never would see that day." So the thousand wildcat shafts burrowed deeper and deeper into the earth day by day, and all men were beside themselves with hope and happiness. How they labored, prophesied, exulted. Surely nothing like it was ever seen before since the world began. Every one of these wildcat mines, not mines, but holes in the ground over imaginary mines, was incorporated and had handsomely engraved stock, and the stock was saleable, too. It was bought and sold with a feverish avidity in the boards every day. You could go up on the mountainside, scratch around and find a ledge—there was no lack of them—put up a notice, with a grandiloquent name in it, start a shaft, get your stock printed, and with nothing whatever to prove that your mine was worth a straw, you could put your stock on the market and sell out for hundreds and even thousands of dollars. To make money, and make it fast, was as easy as it was to eat your dinner." Every man owned feet in fifty different wildcat mines and considered his fortune made. Think of a city with not one solitary poor man in it. One would suppose that when month after month went by and still not a wildcat mine by wildcat I mean in general terms any claim not located on the mother vein, i.e., the Comstock. Yielded a ton of rock worth crushing, the people would begin to wonder if they were not putting too much faith in their prospective riches, but there was not a thought of such a thing. They burrowed away, bought and sold, and were happy. New claims were taken up daily, and it was the friendly custom to run straight to the newspaper offices, give the reporter forty or fifty feet, and get them to go and examine the mine and publish a notice of it. They did not care a fig what you said about the property, so you said something. Consequently, we generally said a word or two to the effect that the indications were good, or that the ledge was six feet wide, or that the rock resembled the comstock. And so it did. But as a general thing, the resemblance was not startling enough to knock you down." If the rock was moderately promising, we followed the custom of the country, used strong adjectives, and frost at the mouth, as if a very marvel in silver discoveries had transpired. If the mine was a developed one, and had no pay-oar to show—and of course it hadn't—we praised the tunnel, said it was one of the most infatuating tunnels in the land, driveled and driveled about the tunnel till we ran entirely out of ecstasies, and never said a word about the rock we would squander half a column of adulation on a shaft, or a new wire rope, or a dressed pine windlass, or a fascinating force-pump, and close with a burst of admiration of the gentlemanly and efficient superintendent of the mine, but never utter a whisper about the rock. And those people were always pleased, always satisfied occasionally we patched up and varnished our reputation for discrimination and stern undeviating accuracy by giving some old abandoned claim a blast that ought to have made its dry bones rattle and then somebody would seize it and sell it on the fleeting notoriety thus conferred upon it there was nothing in the shape of a mining claim that was not saleable we received presents of feet every day if we needed a hundred dollars or so we sold some if not We hoarded it away, satisfied that it would ultimately be worth a thousand dollars a foot. I had a trunk about half full of stock. When a claim made a stir in the market and went up to a high figure, I searched through my pile to see if I had any of its stock, and generally found it. The prices rose and fell constantly, but still a fall disturbed us little, because a thousand dollars a foot was our figure and so we were content to let it fluctuate as much as it pleased till it reached it. My pile of stock was not all given to me by people who wished their claims noticed. At least half of it was given me by persons who had no thought of such a thing, and looked for nothing more than a simple verbal thank you. And you were not even obliged by law to furnish that. If you are coming up the street with a couple of baskets of apples in your hands, and you meet a friend, you naturally invite him to take a few that describes the condition of things in virginia in the flush times every man had his pockets full of stock and it was the actual custom of the country to part with small quantities of it to friends without the asking very often it was a good idea to close the transaction instantly when a man offered a stock present to a friend for the offer was only good and binding at that moment and if the price went to a high figure shortly afterward the procrastination was a thing to be regretted Mr. Stewart, Senator now, from Nevada, one day told me he would give me twenty feet of justice stock if I would walk over to his office. It was worth five or ten dollars a foot. I asked him to make the offer good for next day, as I was just going to dinner. He said he would not be in town, so I risked it, and took my dinner instead of the stock. Within the week the price went up to seventy dollars, and afterward to a hundred and fifty, but nothing could make that man yield. I suppose he sold that stock of mine, and placed the guilty proceeds in his own pocket. My revenge will be found in the accompanying portrait. I met three friends one afternoon, who said they had been buying Overman's stock at auction at eight dollars a foot. One said if I would come up to his office he would give me fifteen feet. Another said he would add fifteen. The third said he would do the same. But I was going after an inquest, and could not stop. A few weeks afterward they sold all their overmen, at six hundred dollars a foot, and generously came around to tell me about it, and also to urge me to accept of the next forty-five feet of it that people tried to force on me. These are actual facts, and I could make the list a long one and still confine myself strictly to the truth. Many a time friends gave us as much as twenty-five feet of stock that was selling at twenty-five dollars a foot and they thought no more of it than they would of offering a guest a cigar these were flush times indeed i thought they were going to last always but somehow i never was much of a prophet to show what a wild spirit possessed the mining brain of the community i will remark that claims were actually located in excavations for cellars where the pick had exposed what seemed to be quartz veins and not cellars in the suburbs either but in the very heart of the city and forthwith stock would be issued and thrown on the market. It was small matter who the seller belonged to, the ledge belonged to the finder, and unless the United States government interfered, inasmuch as the government holds the primary right to mines of the noble metals in Nevada—or at least did then—it was considered to be his privilege to work it. Imagine a stranger staking out a mining claim among the costly shrubbery in your front yard, and calmly proceeding to lay waste the ground with pick and shovel and blasting-powder. It has been often done in California. In the middle of one of the principal business streets of Virginia, a man located a mining claim and began a shaft on it. He gave me a hundred feet of the stock, and I sold it for a fine suit of clothes, because I was afraid somebody would fall down the shaft and sue for damages. I owned in another claim that was located in the middle of another street and to show how absurd people can be, that East India stock, as it was called, sold briskly, although there was an ancient tunnel running directly under the claim, and any man could go into it and see that it did not cut a quartz ledge or anything that remotely resembled one. One plan of acquiring sudden wealth was to salt a wildcat claim, and sell out while the excitement was up. The process was simple. The schemer located a worthless ledge, sunk a shaft on it, bought a wagon-load of rich Comstock ore, dumped a portion of it into the shaft, and piled the rest by its side, above ground. Then he showed the property to a simpleton, and sold it to him at a high figure. Of course, the wagon-load of rich ore was all that the victim ever got out of his purchase. A most remarkable case of salting was that of the North Ophir, "'It was claimed that this vein was a remote extension of the original Ophir, a valuable mine on the Comstock. For a few days everybody was talking about the rich developments in the North Ophir. It was said that it yielded perfectly pure silver in small, solid lumps. I went to the place with the owners, and found a shaft six or eight feet deep, in the bottom of which was a badly shattered vein of dull, yellowish, unpromising rock. One would as soon expect to find silver in a grindstone.' We got out a pan of the rubbish, and washed it in a puddle, and sure enough, among the sediment, we found half a dozen black, bullet-looking pellets of unimpeachable, native silver. Nobody had ever heard of such a thing before. Science could not account for such a queer novelty. The stock rose to sixty-five dollars a foot, and at this figure the world-renowned tragedian, McKean McCannon, bought a commanding interest, and prepared to quit the stage once more. He was always doing that. And then it transpired that the mine had been salted, and not in any hackneyed way, either, but in a singularly bold, barefaced, and peculiarly original and outrageous fashion. On one of the lumps of native silver was discovered the minted legend, Ted States of. And then it was plainly apparent that the mine had been salted with melted half-dollars. The lumps thus obtained had been blackened till they resembled native silver, and were then mixed with a shattered rock in the bottom of the shaft. It is literally true. Of course, the price of the stock at once fell to nothing, and the tragedian was ruined. But for this calamity we might have lost McKean Buchanan from the stage. End of chapter 44 This is Chapter 45 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 45 The flush times held bravely on, something over two years before Mr. Goodman and Another journeyman printer had borrowed forty dollars and set out from San Francisco to try their fortunes in the new city of Virginia. They found the territorial enterprise, a poverty-stricken weekly journal, gasping for breath and likely to die. They bought it, type fixtures, goodwill, and all for a thousand dollars on long time. The editorial sanctum, newsroom, press-room, publication office, bedchamber, parlor, and kitchen were all compressed into one apartment and it was a small one too the editors and printers slept on the floor a chinaman did their cooking and the imposing stone was the general dinner table but now things were changed the paper was a great daily printed by steam there were five editors and twenty-three compositors the subscription price was sixteen dollars a year the advertising rates were exorbitant and the columns crowded the paper was clearing from six to ten thousand dollars a month, and the enterprise building was finished and ready for occupation- a stately fireproof brick every day from five all the way up to eleven columns of live advertisements were left out or crowded into spasmodic and irregular supplements. The Gould and Curry Company were erecting a monster hundred stamp mill at a cost that ultimately fell little short of a million dollars. Gould and Curry stock paid heavy dividends, a rare thing, and an experience confined to the dozen or fifteen claims located on the main lead, the Comstock. The superintendent of the Gould and Curry lived, rent free, in a fine house built and furnished by the company. He drove a fine pair of horses, which were a present from the company, and his salary was twelve thousand dollars a year. The superintendent of another of the great mines traveled in grand state, had a salary of twenty-eight thousand dollars a year, and in a lawsuit in after-days claimed that he was to have had one per cent on the gross yield of the bullion likewise. Money was wonderfully plenty—the trouble was, not how to get it, but how to spend it, how to lavish it, get rid of it, squander it and so it was a happy thing that just at this juncture the news came over the wires that a great United States Sanitary Commission had been formed, and money was wanted for the relief of the wounded sailors and soldiers of the Union languishing in the eastern hospitals. Right on the heels of it came word that San Francisco had responded superbly before the telegram was half a day old. Virginia rose as one man a sanitary committee was hurriedly organized and its chairman mounted a vacant cart in c street and tried to make the clamorous multitude understand that the rest of the committee were flying hither and thither and working with all their might and main and that if the town would only wait an hour an office would be ready books opened and the commission prepared to receive contributions his voice was drowned and his information lost in a ceaseless roar of cheers and demands that the money be received now they swore they would not wait. The chairman pleaded and argued, but, deaf to all entreaty, men ploughed their way through the throng, and rained checks of gold coin into the cart, and scurried away for more. Hands clutching money were thrust aloft out of the jam by men who hoped this eloquent appeal would cleave a road their strugglings could not open. The very Chinamen and Indians caught the excitement, and dashed their half-dollars into the cart without knowing or caring what it was all about. Women plunged into the crowd, trimly attired, fought their way to the cart with their coin, and emerged again by and by with their apparel in a state of hopeless dilapidation. It was the wildest mob Virginia had ever seen, and the most determined and ungovernable, and when at last it abated its fury and dispersed, it had not a penny in its pocket. To use its own phraseology, it came there flush, and went away busted. After that the Commission got itself into systematic working order, and for weeks the contributions flowed into its Treasury in a generous stream. Individuals and all sorts of organizations levied upon themselves a regular weekly tax for the sanitary fund, graduated according to their means, and there was not another grand universal outburst till the famous sanitary floor sack came our way. Its history is peculiar and interesting a former schoolmate of mine by the name of Ruel gridley was living at the little city of austin in the reese river country at this time and was the democratic candidate for mayor he and the republican candidate made an agreement that the defeated man should be publicly presented with a fifty-pound sack of flour by the successful one and should carry it home on his shoulder gridley was defeated The new mayor gave him the sack of flour, and he shouldered it, and carried it a mile or two from Lower Austin to his home in Upper Austin, attended by a band of music and the whole population. Arrived there, he said he did not need the flour, and asked what the people thought he had better do with it. A voice said, "'Sell it to the highest bidder for the benefit of the sanitary fund.' The suggestion was greeted with a round of applause, and Gridley mounted a dry-goods box and assumed the role of auctioneer. The bids went higher and higher as the sympathies of the pioneers awoke and expanded, till at last the sack was knocked down to a millman at two hundred and fifty dollars, and his check taken. He was asked where he would have the flour delivered, and he said, "'Nowhere! Sell it again!' Now the cheers went up royally, and the multitude were fairly in the spirit of the thing, so Gridley stood there and shouted and perspired till the sun went down, and when the crowd dispersed he had sold the sack to three hundred different people, and had taken in eight thousand dollars in gold, and still the flour-sack was in his possession. The news came to Virginia, and a telegram went back, "'Fetch along your flour-sack!' Thirty-six hours afterward Gridley arrived, and an afternoon mass-meeting was held in the Opera House, and the auction began. But the sack had come sooner than it was expected, the people were not thoroughly aroused, and the sale dragged. At nightfall only five thousand dollars had been secured, and there was a crestfallen feeling in the community. However, there was no disposition to let the matter rest here and acknowledge vanquishment at the hands of the village of Austin till late in the night the principal citizens were at work arranging the morrow's campaign and when they went to bed they had no fears for the result at eleven the next morning a procession of open carriages attended by clamorous bands of music and adorned with a moving display of flags filed along c street and was soon in danger of blockade by a huzzaing multitude of citizens in the first carriage sat gridley with the flower sack in prominent view The latter splendid with bright paint and gilt lettering. Also in the same carriage sat the mayor and the recorder. The other carriages contained the common council, the editors and reporters, and other people of imposing consequence. The crowd pressed to the corner of C. and Taylor Streets, expecting the sale to begin there, but they were disappointed, and also unspeakably surprised, for the cavalcade moved on, as if Virginia had ceased to be of importance, and took its way over the divide toward the small town of Gold Hill. Telegrams had gone ahead to Gold Hill, Silver City and Dayton, and those communities were at fever heat and rife for the conflict. It was a very hot day, and wonderfully dusty. At the end of a short half-hour we descended into Gold Hill with drums beating and colors flying, and enveloped in imposing clouds of dust. The whole population—men, women, and children chinamen and indians were massed in the main street all the flags in town were at the masthead and the blare of the bands was drowned in cheers gridley stood up and asked who would make the first bid for the national sanitary flower sack general w said the yellow jacket silver mining company offers a thousand dollars coin a tempest of applause followed a telegram carried the news to virginia and fifteen minutes afterward that city's population was massed in the streets devouring the tidings for it was part of the program that the bulletin boards should do a good work that day every few minutes a new dispatch was bulletined from gold hill and still the excitement grew telegrams began to return to us from virginia beseeching gridley to bring back the flour sack but such was not the plan of the campaign at the end of an hour gold hill's small population had paid a figure for the flour sack that awoke all the enthusiasm of virginia when the grand total was displayed upon the bulletin boards then the gridley cavalcade moved on a giant refreshed with new lager beer and plenty of it for the people brought it to the carriages without waiting to measure it and within three hours more the expedition had carried silver city and dayton by storm and was on its way back covered with glory every move had been telegraphed and bulletined and as the procession entered virginia and filed down c street at half-past eight in the evening the town was abroad in the thoroughfares torches were glaring flags flying bands playing cheer on cheer cleaving the air and the city ready to surrender at discretion the auction began every bid was greeted with bursts of applause and at the end of two hours and a half a population of fifteen thousand souls had paid in coin for fifty-pound sack of flour a sum equal to forty thousand dollars in greenbacks. It was at a rate in the neighborhood of three dollars for each man, woman, and child of the population. The grand total would have been twice as large, but the streets were very narrow, and hundreds who wanted to bid could not get within a block of the stand, and could not make themselves heard. They grew tired of waiting, and many of them went home long before the auction was over. This was the greatest day Virginia ever saw, perhaps. Gridley sold the sack in Carson City and several California towns, also in San Francisco. Then he took it east, and sold it in one or two Atlantic cities, I think. I'm not sure of that, but I know that he finally carried it to St. Louis, where a monster sanitary fair was being held and after selling it there for a large sum and helping on the enthusiasm by displaying the portly silver bricks which nevada's donation had produced he had the flour baked up into small cakes and retailed them at high prices it was estimated that when the flour sacks mission was ended it had been sold for a grand total of a hundred and fifty thousand dollars in greenbacks this is probably the only instance on record where common family flour brought three thousand dollars a pound in the public market. It is due to Mr. Gridley's memory to mention that the expenses of his sanitary flour-sack expedition of fifteen thousand miles, going and returning, were paid in large part, if not entirely, out of his own pocket. The time he gave to it was not less than three months. Mr. Gridley was a soldier in the Mexican War, and a pioneer Californian. He died at Stockton, California, in December 1870, greatly regretted. End of chapter 45. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.